Lucifer Means Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire The Weirwood Compendium Part 4 In a Grove of Ash Hey there, friends, patrons, and fellow mythical astronomers. Today we're going to start with a correction, because I think I was wrong about something. I mean, I'm sure I've been wrong about a lot of things, but there's something in particular that I want to straighten out. In the Weirwood Compendium 2, A Burning Brandon, I concluded that Brand starts off his scene falling from the tower as the moon, with Jamie, who appears in the dream version of this incident, armored like the sun, golden and beautiful, playing the role of the sun, who pushes the moon from the sky. I asserted that Bran then becomes the falling moon meteor fire of the gods when he falls from the tower, and that's actually what we focused on, Bran's fall and what happens after his fall. Now I think the latter part is right. Bran does seem to play the role of the lightning bolt and the burning brand as he falls from the tower. After he lands, he becomes the tree struck by lightning as well, because the lightning sets the tree on fire, merging tree and fire into one, just as a green seer and his weirwood gradually merge in both mind and body. These kinds of mergers are going to be the topic of this episode today, but the point that I want to make right now is that I do not think Bran starts off as the moon, as I had proposed. Although male characters can play the moon role, as we have seen, I don't think that Bran does. Instead, I think his climbing the tower and questing to obtain the fire of the gods casts him in the role of a Morningstar character, the Lucifer or Prometheus figure. It was kind of an oh-duh moment for me, brought on in part by the good folks of the forum challenging the idea of Bran as a moon, and also by reflecting on the theme of Morningstar characters, climbing into the heavens to challenge the gods, or to steal from the gods. In A Song of Ice and Fire, we know that the Morningstar Evenstar symbolism has been transferred onto the comet, by virtue of its association with something called Lightbringer, a word synonymous with morning star, Lucifer, Venus, etc. Venus ascends the sky in the morning as the morning star, and when it's in its even star position at sunset, it appears to fall from the heavens and into the earth or the sea. This is exactly what Bran does, ascending the tower up to the heavens, and then being emphatically cast out of the heavens and back down to earth again, only to dream of flying once more because everything is a cycle. Again, I will refer to the dream version of this event, where Bran climbs through the clouds and into the night sky, and where the earth was a thousand miles beneath him. He was also riding the gargoyle right before encountering Jamie, straddling it to see in the window, which works very well as an image of someone riding a comet or meteor or playing the role of one. So, what I think is happening in that most pivotal of scenes is that Bran is the comet, Jamie is the sun, and Cersei is playing the role of the Nissa Nissa moon. Jamie and Cersei are sort of, you know, going for a tumble in the sheets up there when Bran climbs up like the Morningstar comet to overhear their forbidden conversation. The Lannister love play is described as wrestling, giving us the sex and violence, sex and sword play theme, which we often see well represented by Jamie and Cersei. Cersei also lets out what would appear to be the trademark Nissa Nissa scream when she sees Bran, 
her ecstasy turning to terror in half a heartbeat as she realizes that the twin cest could be exposed. The coupling of the sun and the second moon is a kind of forbidden love because it kills both of them and causes the long night. So it works pretty well as an analog to Jamie and Cersei's forbidden love, which, if discovered, could bring down the Lannisters and throw the entire Seven Kingdoms into war, which is more or less what it does. Cersei's symbolism is complex, but I do think she fits well as a type of Nissa Nissa turned Nissa Nissa reborn figure, which is why her story arc has so often been compared and paralleled to that of Daenerys. Remember that the idea of Nissa Nissa reborn is just a way of talking about a female Azor High reborn that doesn't kowtow to patriarchy so much. The Nissa Nissa reborn figure is a moon meteor, active, vengeful, commanding, a giver and no longer a receiver. It's Cersei with the armor and Robert with the gown, or Cersei thinking that she should have been born with the cock instead of Jaime. Cersei burning the Tower of the Hand, trying to rule, so on and so forth. Nissa Nissa is a moon which is impregnated, but when she's reborn as a meteor, she now does the impregnating. So according to our interpretation of the myth, the sun and moon are in conjunction when the comet hits, the forbidden eclipse alignment, and that's more or less what is happening here with Jaime and Cersei being on top of one another, as it were when Bran climbs up like the comet to intercept. Think about it as a three-way conjunction at that point, of sun and moon and now the comet. The comet can be seen as the interloper in the solar system, the wanderer who disrupts things, just as Bran interrupts Jaime and Cersei. Then, after a short interaction, Bran falls. He now represents the burning brand, the lightning bolt, and various other forms of the fiery moon meteors. Bran as the rising comet is Bran as the morning star, and Bran as the falling moon meteors is Bran as the even star. At each pivot point, there's a transformation, naturally. As a plot point, Bran's fall from the tower pretty much sets off a cascade of transformations for basically every character in the book, and it also starts the wheels in motion on the War of the Five Kings, so it makes a perfect analog for the comet striking the moon and setting off a series of chain reactions. We ended the last episode talking about Odin's hanging on the tree, and about hangings in A Song of Ice and Fire, and I actually found a nice confluence of hanging and the red comet and Bran in that very scene where he falls from the tower. First of all, George uses hanging words to describe Bran twice while he's outside of Jamie's window. As soon as he hears their voices, it says, Bran hung, listening, suddenly afraid to go on. They might glimpse his feet if he tried to swing by. And then again a short moment later while he's riding the gargoyle, Bran sat astride the gargoyle, tightening his legs around it, and swung himself around, upside down. He hung by his legs and slowly stretched his head down toward the window. The world looked strange upside down. A courtyard swam dizzily below him, its stones still wet with melted snow. The top of the tower is where Bran is symbolically struck by lightning, like the bad little boy who climbed too high and this represents his transformational moment when he reaches for the fire of the gods. In his dreams of falling, his fall is associated with the crows pecking his eyes out, which is another reference to death transformation by way of Odin losing his eye to gain cosmic wisdom. Therefore, it makes a ton of sense to show Bran hanging like Odin here. It's just another symbol of Bran transcending death and opening his third eye through self-sacrifice. He's hanging from the tower in order to see. That's kind of the fundamental thing about being hung on the weirwood tree. It enables you to see. Notice that it's again implied that Bran is hanging up in the heavens as it says, the world looked strange upside down. 
This is all taking place at the top of the first keep, the oldest part of Winterfell, which is directly above the entrance to the crypts. And the thing is, we saw the Red Comet hanged here too, in another brand chapter of A Game of Thrones. He could see the comet hanging above the guard's hall and the bell tower, and farther back the first keep, squat and round, its gargoyles black shapes against the bruised purple dusk. Once Bran had known every stone of those buildings, inside and out. He had climbed them all, scampering up walls as easily as other boys ran downstairs. Their rooftops had been his secret places, and the crows atop the broken tower his special friends. And then he had fallen. The comet is hanging above the first keep and its gargoyles, and Bran hung from the gargoyles of the first keep. Bran looks at the comet hanging there, and thinks about how he used to climb up in that same place. At the beginning of the chapter where he falls from the tower, Bran is thinking generally about climbing the towers of Winterfell, and he recalls Maester Lewin referring to the castle as a stone tree, evoking the idea of a petrified weirwood tree. Just as with the scenes in the Riverlands that we looked at in the last episode, we see again that Martin likes to present several death transcendence metaphors in a cluster, presumably to clue us into the idea that they are all related to one another. The top of the first keep is exactly where we should see various symbols of Bran's death transformation, so I'm inclined to see an intentional parallel between Bran and the comet, with both being hung like Odin from the stone tree that is Winterfell. So, sorry everyone, upon further review, Bran does not appear to be a moon. I got that one wrong. I'm sure it will happen again, and I won't hesitate to tell you when it does. Thanks to all of the collaborators on the forums for steering me straight here and elsewhere, and thereby improving the podcast for everyone. As I've said many times, Mythical Astronomy is much the better for all of your collaboration, so cheers. While I'm at it, I should probably mention that I also was mispronouncing the word Yggdrasil incorrectly last time. It's Yggdrasil, not Yggdrasil. So we'll get that right going forward. Now let's get married to some trees. As always, we owe our thanks to Mr. Martin Lewis of the Echoes of Ice and Fire blog and the Amethyst Koala for their fine vocal performances, to Animals as Leaders for allowing us to use their music, to all of our lovely patrons and the starry host, and to George R.R. Martin for writing these wonderful novels. Oh, and we've put our podcasts up on YouTube, so go on over to the Lucifer Means Lightbringer channel on YouTube and check it out. The Arboreal Wedding This section comes to you courtesy of our newest Zodiac patron, Lord Starfoot, the last shepherd of Valyria, earthly avatar of Heavenly House Capricorn and capturer of the Horn. In the last episode, Garth of the Gallows, we saw that the Yggdrasil tree is in one sense Odin's horse that he can ride to travel through the nine realms of the Norse universe, but in another sense also a part of Odin. Odin's physical body is hanged upon his own tree, sacrificing himself to himself, but his spirit can use the tree to traverse the cosmos, because remember, celestial world trees represent a framework of the entire universe. So if you're able to ride that sort of tree and merge with that sort of tree, it follows that you will then have access to the entire cosmos, as Odin does. We talked about how well this compares to the way that a green seer's physical body is strung up in the weirwood roots to enable his spirit to travel, and how the green seer and weirwood form a symbiotic relationship reminiscent of Yggdrasil and Odin. It should be noted that a skin changer and their animal functions much the same way. It's a symbiotic relationship. 
We're going to have another packed episode today where we talk about a lot of things, but the overarching topic will be this relationship between the green seer and the tree. And more specifically, we'll be talking about Azora High going into the Weirwood Net. Let's start off by looking at the quotes which establish the symbiotic relationships of the green seers and skin changers, and we'll begin with the skin changers and their animals. Jojen tells Bran what the deal is in A Clash of Kings. Part of you is summer, and part of summer is you. You know that, Bran. Jojen again, also in A Clash of Kings. The wolf dreams are no true dreams. You have your eye closed tight whenever you're awake. But as you drift off, it flutters open and your soul seeks out its other half. The power is strong in you. And here's Jon Snow in A Dance with Dragons. Ghost was closer than a friend. Ghost was part of him. Okay, so we got that. They're two halves of a whole. And it's the same with the Green Seers and their trees. Bloodraven uses the metaphor of a marriage to describe the Green Seer Weirwood relationship when he refers to eating the Weirwood paste as being wedded to the tree in a dance with the dragons. Your blood makes you a Green Seer, said Lord Brynden. This will help awaken your gifts and wed you to the trees. Bran did not want to be married to a tree, but who else would wed a broken boy like him? A thousand eyes, a hundred skins, wisdom deep as the roots of ancient trees. A green seer, he ate. When two hearts beat as one, they wed, even if it's a human heart and a heart tree. Wedding the trees means becoming part of a symbiotic relationship, and it's this merger of green seer to tree that constitutes the burning tree symbol, which is one form of the fire of the gods. It's just like when the sun and moon combine to make Lightbringer, the other form of the fire of the gods. The wedding of the green seer to the trees is an alchemical wedding of a different type. An arboreal wedding, you might say, especially if you're someone who has a podcast and you need to come up with passingly clever section titles. But both of these magical weddings involve two becoming one, and in more than the typical sense of a man and wife. Take a look at the specific lines which have led me to dub Danny's dragon hatching as the alchemical wedding, so you have it fresh in your mind to compare to the wedding of the green seers and the trees. She had sensed the truth of it long ago, Danny thought, as she took a step closer to the conflagration, but the brazier had not been hot enough. The flames writhed before her like the women who had danced at her wedding, whirling and singing and spinning their yellow and orange and crimson veils, fearsome to behold, yet lovely, so lovely, alive with heat. Danny opened her arms to them, her skin flushed and glowing. This is a wedding too, she thought. It's a wedding in a funeral pyre, attended by the familiar fiery dancers, and it's a wedding that produces various symbols of Lightbringer. One of the main takeaways from the last episode concerning Odin's hanging on Yggdrasil is that it is a metaphor to express the idea of transcendence and transformation through death, and that this compares to a green seer sacrificing his physical body to gain access to the weirwood net and outliving his mortal years once inside. The alchemical wedding scene gives us the same theme, as Drogo dies but appears to be reborn, and Danny symbolically dies, miraculously transcends death, and is then reborn in character and spirit. As I said, it's not only a death transformation for our solar and lunar characters, it's also a merging of the two, a wedding. A moment earlier in that same chapter, Danny's inner monologue spells out the fusing as one concept, which is the main point here. 
And now the flames reached her Drogo, and now they were all around him. His clothing took fire, and for an instant the call was clad in wisps of floating orange silk and tendrils of curling smoke, gray and greasy. Danny's lips parted, and she found herself holding her breath. Part of her wanted to go to him, as Sir Jorah had feared, to rush into the flames to beg for his forgiveness and take him inside her one last time, the fire melting the flesh from their bones until they were as one forever. Returning to Bran's A Dance with Dragons chapter in Blood Raven's Cave, we see that wetting the trees also involves two merging as one. Close your eyes, said the three-eyed crow. Slip your skin as you do when you join with summer. But this time, go into the roots instead. Follow them up through the earth to the trees upon the hill and tell me what you see. Bran closed his eyes and slipped free of his skin. Into the roots, he thought. Into the weirwood, become the tree. For an instant, he could see the cavern in its black mantle, could hear the river rushing by below. Then all at once, he was back home again. That's pretty clear. Skin changing and green seeing means that the green seer becomes one with the animal or tree they are wetting. Forging Lightbringer means much the same, and you guys know the basic formula by now. Sun plus moon equals Lightbringer. It's the bastard brother of R plus L equals J. S plus M equals L. The idea is that the sun impregnates the moon with its comet seed, which carries its fiery essence. Although it's the comet that physically merges with the moon, the eclipse language of the moon, wandering too close to the sun and cracking from its heat, when it gave birth to the dragon meteors, provides a visual reinforcement of the main theme, sun plus moon equals Lightbringer. Notice all the language at the alchemical wedding that describes Danny as being penetrated by the fire. She wants to rush into the flames and take Drogo inside her. She famously declares that she has the fire inside her as she walks into the pyre, and one of her nicknames is the Bride of Fire. When she was giving birth to Rago, the lizard baby, and having her wake the dragon dream, it says that she could feel the heat inside her, a terrible burning in her womb. What this is showing us is that the Solar King's fiery seed sets the moon maiden on fire, and again this equates to the sun appearing to set the moon on fire with his dragon seed comet. The sun weds the moon by sending its fire into it. The green seers wed the trees by sending their spirits into them. Both weddings produce a symbol of the fire of the gods. I think you can see where this is going. There's a pretty great as-above-so-below thing developing here with the two forms of godly fire, which I have nicknamed meteor fire and weirwood fire. Up in the sky, the sun transforms itself by sending its dragon seed into the moon via the original comet, setting the moon on fire. The comet and moon merge and consume each other, and again visually it looks as though the sun and moon are merging and consuming each other, and the end results are symbols of Lightbringer, a darkened sun, a reborn red comet, and fiery dragon meteors. Down on the earth, the dragon Greenseer transforms himself by sending his consciousness into the weirwood, setting the tree on fire and activating it for use. The Greenseer and the weirwood merge, consuming each other, and the end result is the other symbol of Lightbringer and the fire of the gods, the burning tree. In other words, just as I said that I think Bran is playing the role of the comet in his scene with Jamie and Cersei atop the tower, 
it seems that the green seer or skin changer usually plays the role of the sun or more often its comet. Perhaps the best way to say it is that the body of the green seer can be the sun and the comet represents his spirit, his dragon consciousness, which he can project into things. The weirwoods, meanwhile, would seem to correlate to the moon, the recipient of the fiery dragon. The latter is no breaking news, really. The weirwood-moon associations are reinforced throughout the series, and I bet you can even name a couple of them off the top of your head. We first saw that at the moon door in the Eyrie in A Game of Thrones. A narrow weirwood door stood between two slender marble pillars, a crescent moon carved in the white wood. Arya sees weirwood moons on the carved wooden doors of the House of Black and White in a storm of swords. The left-hand door was made of weirwood, pale as bone, the right of gleaming ebony. In their center was a carved moon face, ebony on the weirwood side, weirwood on the ebony. The look of it reminded her somehow of the heart tree in the godswood at Winterfell. The doors are watching me, she thought. It's a weirwood and ebony, moon-faced yin-yang. That pattern is repeated with the chairs in the House of Black and White, black ebony chairs with white weirwood moon faces, and weirwood chairs with ebony moon faces. And then, of course, we have the weirwood face known as the Black Gate beneath the Night Fort, an old friend to us by now, which emits a soft glow like milk and moonlight. I think it's pretty clear that the weirwoods are playing the lunar role, being impregnated by a fiery dragon seed, by someone like Brandon the Burning Brand, or Brynden the Dragon-Blooded Greenseer, or the original Azor High himself. The result of this wedding, this joining of two hearts that beat as one, is Lightbringer the Burning Tree, if you will. And yes, I realize the weirwood is starting to sound a lot like Nissa Nissa. I did just say that it correlates to the moon impregnated by the comet, and that when this happens it produces a version of Lightbringer. And indeed, there is some very important symbolic overlap between the Weirwoods and the idea of Nissa Nissa, as they both wed Azor High and become mothers of different versions of Azor High Reborn and Lightbringer. First, we'll talk about the idea of Azor High going into the tree and setting it on fire, and then we'll talk about Nissa Nissa and the Weirwoods as the grand finale, because it's really freaking cool. Okay, so check this out. Consider the Weirwood tree. In fact, to set the mood, Here's the very first description we ever get of one, the heart tree in the Winterfell godswood from A Game of Thrones. At the centre of the grove, an ancient weirwood brooded over a small pool where the waters were black and cold. The heart tree, Ned called it. The weirwood's bark was white as bone, its leaves dark red, like a thousand blood-stained hands. A face had been carved into the trunk of the great tree, its features long and melancholy, the deep-cut eyes red with dried sap and strangely watchful. Its red leaves look like a thousand blood-stained hands, and elsewhere its canopy looks like a blaze of flame. It has a face carved into its bone-white trunk, usually unpleasant or angry-looking, and that face weeps bloody tears and appears to have a mouthful of blood as well. Basically, it looks like a bloody, burning tree person whose flesh has melted off, just like Danny imagines the fire melting the flesh from their bones until they were as one forever as she goes into the pyre. Here's the point. I believe that we can essentially consider the weirwood as a portrait of the burning moon, as if it had been frozen in the moment of its incineration. Recall the description of the weirwood as a pale giant frozen in time, 
It's actually more like a giant burning tree frozen in time, forever burning but not being consumed. It would seem to be George R. R. Martin's own version of Moses' burning bush, which was not consumed, in which a terrifying angel appeared and spoke to Moses with the voice of God. Indeed, this may be an important part of the mix in terms of weirwood symbolism. The burning bush is a well-known symbol of the Spirit of God incarnating on earth, and that seems to be exactly the role played by the animated weirwoods, which essentially look like eternally burning trees, and which act as a repository for the collective consciousness referred to as the old gods. The weirwoods, as trees that burn without being consumed, also make a great analog to a glass candle which burns but is not consumed, according to Marwin the Mage in A Feast for Crows. The candles can be used to see over long distances and enter people's dreams and God knows what else, and the weirwoods can do very similar things for a greenseer. I'm sure we'll eventually do a side-by-side -side comparison of the two here at some point, but you can see the parallels right away. Now that we have linked the weirwoods with a certain kind of fire, what I'm calling weirwood fire is really more of a spiritual fire, like the idea of the Holy Spirit, these parallels stand out all the more. I've made a pretty big to-do about black moon meteors, I think that's safe to say. If the weirwoods represent the moon at the moment of its incineration, then we need some black meteor symbols, don't we? That role is played by the black ravens, which perch on the branches of the weirwoods like black leaves, as it says in A Feast for Crows. You may recall the scene with cold hands where the ravens descend in black clouds and blot out the moon and sky, or when they erupt from the trees on night black wings with sharp cries and sharper beaks, or the symbolism of the dark messenger that brings dark words, and how that also applies to the comet, the red messenger and the harbinger of doom. And the people who send those night-black-winged death messengers into battle are the green seers, just as, well, you know, just as the green seers broke the moon and called down the moon meteors, according to some theory I heard on the internet somewhere. I would actually say that ravens are among the most vivid and important symbols of the black moon meteors. They erupt from the burning moon tree in black clouds, which are capable of blotting out the heavenly lights. Each different thing used to symbolize the moon meteors represents some unique aspect of them, and one of the main things that the ravens emphasize are the black clouds which blotted out the sun. The Valyrian steel swords accomplish the same thing by virtue of being called Smoke Dark, and the same goes for Rob's direwolf, Grey Wind, who was also called Smoke Dark. Black ravens, black dragon swords, and dark hellhounds are all attacking, biting projectile symbols, which do a great job of showing a striking meteor, so it makes sense to also wrap them in the symbolism of the clouds of darkness that the meteor impacts caused. Plus, when they move, they look like a meteor trailing dark smoke. Thus, returning to our Burning Moon Weirwood portrait, it seems to have three components. First, the pale wood of the tree simply serves to suggest the idea of a standard whitish-silver-looking moon. The fact that the Weirwood wood petrifies in place and turns to pale stone also encourages us to connect its white wood with pale moonstone. Second part, the blood and flame-colored hand-shaped leaves and bloody eyes and mouth show us the moon in the moment of its fiery impregnation, when it had the fire inside her, as they say, and here the bone-white wood may also be implying a moon stripped of its skin. Third, the black ravens show us the black meteors that erupt from the burning moon and the black clouds of darkness that they caused. The blood and fire, hand-shaped leaves, also give us the familiar symbolism of the fiery hand of God, the one that flings the meteors. You remember the sock puppet analogy, right? 
The moon is like a sock puppet that the sun animates with its fiery comet, and together they create the burning hand symbol. This is exactly the same as Azor High slipping his fiery dragon consciousness inside the weirwood net to create the burning tree symbol. The weirwood is like a big wooden hand puppet that the green seer can use to reach out with, which he does by slipping inside it and making it do things. The moon is like a closed stone fist that the sun can use to reach out with, which it does by slipping a little bit of its fire inside it and making it do things. Things like flinging a handful of burning meteors onto the planetos. We've discussed the red-to-black color shift of the blood of people who undergo fire transformation many times. We dedicated a whole episode to the idea of the moon having its symbolic moon blood burned black by the comet, and how that's paralleled by Daenerys and Melisandre and several others who have their blood turned black when they have the fire inside them. This important red-to-black blood transformation is twice hinted at with the bloody hands and face of the weirwood. First, in this scene from A Clash of Kings, with Arya in the Harrenhal Godswood. The light of the moon painted the limbs of the weirwood silvery white as she made her way toward it, but the five-pointed red leaves turned black by night. We even get the moon painting the weirwood as a bonus, and we saw much the same language at the Nightfort scene as the weirwood reached up for the moon and was painted in silver moonlight. Even better to see the Weirwood-Moon connection here in this Arya scene, alongside the leaves turning black by night, as it encourages us to think about Red Moon blood turning black. We'll come back to this very rich scene, and Hall in general, in the future. Have no fear. The Weirwoods have their blood turned black again in a dance with dragons, when Jon Snow and a handful of Night's Watch brothers and recruits come to the Weirwood Grove of Nine to have the recruits say their vows. This is actually a great scene to illustrate the idea of Azor Ahai going into the Weirwood and the Moon at the same time, so let's go ahead and make this its own section. A Moon-Shaped Grove This section is sponsored through Patreon by the mysterious Wurlane Dervish, Woods Witch of the Wolf's Wood, earthly avatar of Celestial House Scorpio. Once again, we return to one of our favorite places, the Weirwood Grove of Nine. What we're going to see here are weirwoods that individually symbolize a burning moon, as we've just proposed, as well as an entire grove that collectively paints the portrait of a burning moon. The grove will be penetrated by John and his Night's Watch brothers, and Lightbringer things will happen inside. All of these quotes will be from A Dance with Dragons, unless otherwise indicated, and we'll start with a quote that shows the red-to-black blood transformation that we just saw with Arya in the Hall Godswood. The weirwoods rose in a circle around the edges of the clearing. There were nine, all roughly of the same age and size. Each one had a face carved into it, and no two faces were alike. Some were smiling, some were screaming, some were shouting at him. In the deepening glow, their eyes looked black. But in daylight, they would be blood-red, John knew. Eyes like ghosts. First of all, we have nine weirwoods, perhaps a nod to the nine days Odin spent hanging on Yggdrasil. The nine weirwoods are in a circle, creating a nice, round, full-moon shape, which will soon be penetrated by John and his fellow swords in the darkness. John is the key here, of course, as one of the two main incarnations of Azor Ahai Reborn, and he's armed with Valyrian steel. 
As they rush the clearing, we see the general theme of the scene presented to us, the weirwoods swallowing the sun. Night was falling fast. The shafts of sunlight had vanished when the last thin slice of the sun was swallowed beneath the western woods. The pink snowdrifts were going white again, the colour leaching out of them as the world darkened. The evening sky had turned the faded grey of an old cloak that had been washed too many times, and the first shy stars were coming out. Night was falling fast. Did you catch that? One thinks of the Valyrian steel sword Nightfall with its moonstone pommel, and the concept of falling moon meteor swords that caused the long night. There's also a nice little call-out to the starry cloak of Mithras, which Beric Dondarrion also wears. And I like to imagine the Bloodstone Emperor running around in a starry cloak too, for what it's worth. The sky throws on this old starry cloak right after the woods swallow the sun, which is a nice depiction of Azor Ahai transforming into his darker alter ego, the Bloodstone Emperor, by being swallowed by the weirwood net. It's also just a plain old good illustration of how nature mythology and mythical astronomy works. The myths are supposed to describe what's happening in the cycles and seasons of the earth. Some cultures perceive the night sky as a kind of dark sun, so saying the solar king turns dark and throws on his starry cloak when the world darkens is really just simple nature mythology. But it also makes for the seeds of a fantastic story about a solar king turning to darkness as he immerses himself in starry wisdom. Of course, the main event here is the symbol of the trees swallowing the sun. The sun is actually described as a slice, which nicely implies a solar sacrifice, like a sun king sliced open, as well as the idea of a sliced-off piece of the sun, which is kind of how we talk about the comet when we describe it as the sun's dragon seed or his dragon consciousness. That's the part that's swallowed by the trees and by the moon and by Nissa Nissa. John, by the way, is a morning star, even star figure, and a comet person, like Bran. As we've said before, the Morning Star is often regarded as a son of the sun in world mythology, most notably with Christianity, which aligns God the Father with the sun, and Jesus, the Son of God, with the Morning Star. In A Song of Ice and Fire, the Morning Star is the comet, and the comet can be regarded as a sliced-off piece of the sun, a bit of the sun's essence, as his dragon seed or his dragon consciousness. This is the part of the sun, the slice of the sun, that goes into the moon and into the weirwoods. In other words, the trees swallowing the last slice of the sun works in parallel to John slipping inside the weirwood grove. The circular grove also symbolizes the moon, and as a matter of fact, we've seen the moon swallow the sun before in much the same language. This comes from a Tyrian chapter of A Dance with Dragons. Only the brightest stars were visible, all to the west. A dull red glow lit the sky to the northeast, the color of a blood bruise. Tyrion had never seen a bigger moon, monstrous, swollen. It looked as if it had swallowed the sun and woken with a fever. Its twin, floating on the sea beyond the ship, shimmered red with every wave. We've seen more than one weirwood described as monstrous, which is what happens when you swallow the sun's fire. The moon appears red and fevered, and this compares well with the weirwoods looking anguished, bleeding, and burning. It also compares well with the Moon Maidens who die giving birth to Lightbringer children, like the mothers of Jon Snow, Tyrion, and Daenerys. And while we're here taking a look at this quote, say hello to the drowned moon swimming in the sea with her living fire, as well as the clue about the moon once having a twin. Now, of course, 
All of this stuff about the trees and the moon swallowing the sun is talking about Azora High wetting the trees and going into the Weirwood Net. And back in our John chapter, we find what appears to be a clever depiction of Azora High stuck inside the Weirwood Net and staring back out at us. This takes place just before the brothers reach the grove. John glimpsed the red wanderer above, watching them through the leafless branches of great trees as they made their way beneath. The thief, the free folk called it. The best time to steal a woman was when the thief was in the moon maid, Egret had always claimed. One of the reasons why it's so much fun to study the symbolism and metaphor in A Song of Ice and Fire is because once you pick up on one of George's many threads, you find that George has left an extensive and well-marked trail of breadcrumbs to lead us through the woods. This is a great example. Once you pick up on the thread of the sun figure going into the weirwood, you find these juicy nuggets all over the place, and specifically, you find the same idea repeated throughout a chapter. Sometimes, you really just have to smile at George's cleverness and sense of humor. The Red Wanderer is watching them through the leafless branches of the tree, you say? He might as well say that Azora High was watching them through the trees, as much as he's associated the Red Wanderer with the Red Comet and Azora High Reborn. Oh, and lest we forget these associations, the very next sentence reminds us that Mr. R.L.J. Zora High reborn himself, John Snow, was like the Red Wanderer that one time when he stole Ygritte, the Nissanissa Moon Maiden. Very nice, very nice. Translation, the Red Wanderer stole a Moon Maiden, and now the Red Wanderer watches them through the trees. John Snow stole a Moon Maiden, and soon he'll be looking out at the world through his weirwood-colored direwolf. In this scene, he's about to enter the moon-shaped weirwood grove, which is the same idea. There's one more instance of this line of symbolism before John and crew approach the grove. Half a mile from the grove, long red shafts of autumn sunlight were slanting down between the branches of the leafless trees, staining the snowdrifts pink. Here, right before that slice of sun is swallowed, we see the red shafts of sun staining the snow pink, almost as if it were bleeding on the snow. They slant down between the branches, as if their red blood fire were being offered to the trees. I tend to think this might be meant as a parallel to the first chapter of A Game of Thrones, when Garrod, the terrified runaway Night's Watch ranger, who had escaped the others in the prologue, was executed on an ironwood stump at Winterfell, and stained the snowdrifts red. The line about the blood there was, The snows around the stump drank it eagerly, reddening as he watched. Something similar happened in the prologue of A Game of Thrones when Sir Waymar was killed. Referring to his falling blood, it says, It steamed in the cold, and the droplets seemed red as fire where they touched the snow. So here in this John scene in the Weirwood Grove, which seems to be all about Azor High penetrating the moon and the Weirwood Net, we have the sun staining the snowdrifts and then being swallowed by the trees. Think of the slain captive in the Bran vision of human sacrifice in front of Winterfell's heart tree that he has in A Dance with Dragons, where Bran can taste the blood of the victim as it runs into the pond beneath the tree. The tree is swallowing the victim's blood, and thus his fire. Was this merely a sacrifice? Or was this part of a ceremony to send a green seer into the tree? It may be that the very first green seers to enter the weirwood net had to be themselves sacrificed to the tree. That's what's being implied about Azor High here. With the benefit of hindsight after finishing Book 5, I think we can say that solar sacrifice symbolism like this in John's scenes can also be taken as foreshadowing John's own death, 
where he took his turn at staining the snow red. John will then presumably be swallowed by his wolf, who, again, just happens to be compared to a weirwood tree several times, as we saw at the beginning of this section. This will be another manifestation of the idea of the weirwoods swallowing a slice of the sun, with that slice being John's spirit. There's a line in the lead-up to the grove that says, Of late, John Snow sometimes felt as if he and the dire wolf were one, even awake. Now that very same brand chapter back in A Dance with Dragons, which gave us the vision of the human sacrifice before Winterfell's heart tree, also gives us some clues about the resurrection of a red solar king. Check this one out. The moon was a black hole in the sky. Wolves howled in the wood, sniffing through the snowdrifts after dead things. A murder of ravens erupted from the hillside, screaming their sharp cries, black wings beating above a white world. A red sun rose and set and rose again, painting the snows in shades of rose and pink. I've pointed out before that the language of a red sun that set and rose again is rather suggestive of a resurrection. And now we recognize the symbol of the dying sun staining the snow red and pink like a sacrifice. There's one other instance of this kind of similar language about the red sun in that same brand chapter, and it too implies a sacrifice. The moon was a crescent, thin and sharp as the blade of a knife. The pale sun rose and set and rose again. Red leaves whispered in the wind. Dark clouds filled the skies and turned to storms. Lightning flashed and thunder rumbled. And dead men, with black hands and bright blue eyes, shuffled round a cleft in the hillside, but could not enter. Under the hill, the broken boy sat upon a weirwood throne listening to whispers in the dark as ravens walked up and down his arms. The knife-shaped crescent moon language is important because it links to the scene of human sacrifice at the end of the chapter, where a white-haired woman stepped toward them through a drift of dark red leaves, a bronze sickle in her hand. A crescent moon can also be called a sickle moon, making the connection between the moon and the sacrificial sickle in this chapter apparent. So right after the line about the curved knife-blade moon, we get the line about a pale sun that rose and set and rose again. And I think these ideas are intended to go together. Perhaps we are supposed to think about sacrificing someone to the weirwoods in conjunction with a red sun dying and rising again. The rest is all talk of the living dead, lightning, and a green seer on a weirwood throne, which all seems to relate to the general themes that we're following here about Azora High, the solar king, being sacrificed to enter the weirwoods. Once again, I'm left thinking that John's resurrection, his rebirth from inside the weirwood-colored direwolf, really needs to take place inside that weirwood grove of nine, as Radio Westeros has predicted. I'm also left increasingly suspicious that Ghost's weirwood-colored wolf body may need to be set on fire to create the undead wolfman John. But again, in this scenario, the spirit of Ghost would likely travel with John's spirit into the resurrected body, so Ghost should still be with us, in a manner of speaking. Okay, let's jump back over to the John chapter and see John and the Night's Watch Rangers penetrate the Weirwood Circle. And don't blame me for all the penetration and insertion language. This is Lightbringer stuff we're talking about, and Lightbringer is always a little bit about, well, you know. Ahead, he glimpsed a pale white trunk that could only be a Weirwood, crowned with a head of dark red leaves. John Snow reached back and pulled Longclaw from its sheath. He looked to right and left, gave Satin and Horse a nod, watched them pass it on to the men beyond. They rushed the grove together, K-1 
kicking through drifts of old snow with no sound but their breathing. Ghost ran with them, a white shadow at John's side. And then the next paragraph is the one where we get the reference to the Weirwood's bloody visage turning black by night, right as John is inserting himself into the circle of trees. <laughs> John came in here with his dragon steel wolf sword and seems to have turned the moon's blood black. This is the forging of Lightbringer that we're talking about here, the transformation of Azora High the Fiery Greenseer, so I have to look at that weirwood crowned with a head of dark red leaves as a great symbol of that very man, the newly crowned King of the Burning Tree. In a different light, those leaves can look like a blaze of flame, so it's also implying the idea of a fiery crown, such as Stannis wears. Now recall the Iron Crown-Wooden Crown dichotomy of the Ironborn. Grey King had a weirwood crown or a driftwood crown, depending on the tale, and later Ironborn wore wooden driftwood crowns, while Naga's Hill itself is said to be crowned with weirwood ribs. But then we have the Iron Kings, who wear crowns of black iron, something Balin Greyjoy imitates. The Gardener Kings, who descend from Garth the Green, echo this wood or iron crown pattern, wearing a type of laurel crown of leaves and vines when at peace, and a crown of bronze and later iron when at war. Then over in the north, we have the King of Winter's crown with its nine black iron swords mounted on a bronze circlet. And then we have this very ancient and very sacred grove of nine weirwoods, where the Night's Watch have been swearing their vows to the old gods for centuries, perhaps even going back to the formation of the Night's Watch. You can see how this grove of nine could be seen as a kind of weirwood version of the King of Winter's crown, and this idea is reinforced by John seeing one of the weirwoods in the sacred grove as wearing a crown. Consider this line as the rangers step into the grove. By then, the grove was ringed by rangers, sliding past the bone-white trees, steel glinting in black-gloved hands, poised for slaughter. The rangers are black swords, in a manner of speaking, so they're essentially creating the King of Winter's crown over top the weirwood circle by forming a ring of steel and black-clad swords in the darkness. It's almost like the Weirwood Circle is putting on the King of Winter's crown here, which could make sense in terms of the King of Winter being Azor High after being transformed through the Weirwood. It also creates a nice parallel between the Black Crown of Swords and the Weirwood Grove. Now when they slide past the perimeter of the circle, they're symbolizing the comet penetrating the moon, yes, but also the moon meteors setting fire to the tree, and thus Azor High entering the Weirwood Net. I have to mention again that the frequent description of the weirwood bark as bone white works to reinforce the idea that the sea dragon bones are weirwood, and thus a weirwood ribcage. Inside a ribcage is the heart, and bone white weirwood trees are only called heart trees when they have a bloody face carved in them, when they are inhabited by the spirit of a green seer. The green seer is the heart, the fire, the thing that pumps hot blood and life into the system. The Night's Watch is the sword in the darkness, the fire that burns against the cold, and the light that brings the dawn, and they're bringing all of those things into the moon-shaped grove. At the same time, John and his black sword brothers are bringing slaughter to the grove, because this is a death transformation. The comet set the moon on fire, and the meteors set the tree on fire. At Old Wick, we find the idea of fire inside the weirwood implied in the name, Old Wick as in the place which caught on fire that one time, and also in the tale of the Grey King warming his weirwood ribcage hall with the living fire of the sea dragon. 
But at the same time, he also slew the sea dragon, and the weirwood ribs are dead and petrified, and the Grey King himself became corpse-like and probably undead, so again, this is all fiery death transformation symbolism. By the way, there's one other really cool connection between the Weirwood Grove of Nine and the Sea Dragon, which is the fact that one of the few places where we hear that Weirwood Circles still exist is on Sea Dragon Point. This encourages us to think of the Sea Dragon Bones as being similar to a Weirwood Circle, and to this Grove of Nine, which is the main Weirwood Circle in the story. Now, this scene wouldn't be complete without some sort of explosive grand finale of symbolism to show us the moon explosion and the awakening of the dragons, but that's going to lead to a slightly different topic and a new line of symbolism, so we'll make it a new section. And before we cover that more explosive and violent manifestation of Lightbringer's birth, I actually want to mention the more subtle one, which is the new recruits swearing their Night's Watch vows to the heart trees. This is another kind of marriage, where the Night's Watch forswear all others and pledge fealty to the green seers who inhabit the trees. Just as John will go inside Ghost, and just as John mentions thinking that lately he and Ghost seemed to be as one, the Night's Watch are pledging their lives, giving their lives really, to the Weirwoods. The text says that they knelt before the Weirwood, and it also says that with their black hoods and thick black cowls, the six might have been carved from shadow. The carved language equates them with the carved tree, and this would be because they are symbolizing those twelve undead skin changers or green seers resurrected to fight alongside the last hero. In theory, of course. Calling them shadows makes them sound like ghosts, as if their physical bodies had just been sacrificed. We saw similar implications when Sam and John swore their vows in this very same grove, as John killed the green boy and became a man of the Night's Watch, as his eventual killer, Bowen Marsh, guided him in his vows. Recall the lines used after the pledge is complete. Rise now as men of the Night's Watch. As in, rise harder and stronger as men of the Long Night's Watch of resurrected green seers, the Brotherhood of the Gallows Tree. Okay, now for the promised Lightbringer action. They might be giants. This section is brought to you by the Patreon support of Lady Jane of House Celtigar, the Emerald of the Evening and Captain of the Dreadship Eclipse Wind, earthly avatar of Heavenly House Cancer. Blue Canary in the alley by the light switch, who watches over... Oh, hey, oh, hey, sorry, guys. That's a catchy song. Hard to stop singing that one. So, here is the grand finale of the Grove of Nine scene picking up right after the last line that we quoted about the rangers being poised for slaughter. Make a little birdhouse in your soul. The giant was the last to notice them. He had been asleep, curled up by the fire. But something woke him, the child's cry, the sound of snow crunching beneath black boots, a sudden indrawn breath. When he stirred, it was as if a boulder had come to life. He heaved himself into a sitting position with a snort, pouring at his eyes with hands as big as hams to rub the sleep away, until he saw Iron Emmet, his sword shining in his hand. Roaring, he came leaping to his feet, and one of those huge hands closed around a maul and jerked it up. Well, that's clear enough. A boulder came to life. That's the birth of a meteor, if I ever heard one and it's even roaring for us like a dragon. But because weirwoods are pale giants frozen in time, as Tyrion describes the Winterfell heart tree, 
An awakening giant can also be used to symbolize an awakening weirwood. And it's not only that one quote likening weirwoods to giants. In A Dance with Dragons, Theon comes upon the Winterfell heart tree and it says, The heart tree stood before him, a pale giant with a carved face and leaves like bloody hands. Now, an awakening weirwood is exactly what we should see here in the weirwood grove, now that Azor Ahai has arrived inside the wood with his fire and his buddies with shining swords. I believe that's what's happening here. The giant is simultaneously depicting the awakening of the moon and the awakening of a weirwood. That should come as no surprise, really. We've seen the moon compared to giants many times, so if the weirwoods can in some sense symbolize the moon, it follows that they might be giants as well. <laughs> that pun is dedicated to Aziz at History of Westeros. One other clue about the giant representing the moon. In that earlier quote with the Red Wanderer watching them through the trees, and Ygritte's advice about stealing a woman when the Red Wanderer, the thief, was in the Moon Maid, John goes on to think to himself, she never mentioned the best time to steal a giant, which would equate the giant with the stolen Moon Maiden figure. John does in fact steal the giant and the other wildlings there, and bring them back to Castle Black. There's more from the giant though, so let's continue with the scene where we left off. The giant bellowed again, a sound that shook the leaves in the trees and slammed his maul against the ground. The shaft of it was six feet of gnarled oak, the head a stone as big as a loaf of bread. The impact made the ground shake. Some of the other wildlings went scrabbling for their own weapons. When giants awaken in the moon, the earth shakes because moon meteors came crashing down to the planet. The moon meteor impacts are what made the ground shake, and they're also what created the earthly version of the burning tree. Here, that is depicted by the giant awakening, the moon, and then slamming the ground with the stone head of his maul, the moon meteors. And not only does this make the earth shake, you'll notice that this also shakes the leaves in the trees, a potential reference to Greenseer speech through rustling and whispering weirwood leaves. One of the most memorable examples of a giant playing the moon role also used the language of an earthquake. You'll recall Sir Gregor's symbolism of being a stone giant and also a moon warrior, and how Tyrion made a remark about the ground shaking when he walks. We also saw the weirwood symbolism there, with the spear of ash wood planted in the mountain's fallen body. These are the same ideas being expressed in the weirwood grove. The waking of the moon giant leads to giants waking in the earth, which are earthquakes, and also weirwoods being set on fire and awakened. In fact, the legend of the Hammer of the Waters involves both waking giants in the earth and making blood sacrifice to weirwoods, which we think is one part of awakening a tree. So with that in mind, let's jump over to the account of the Hammer of the Waters from the World of Ice and Fire. And so they did, gathering in their hundreds, some say on the Isle of Faces, and calling on their old gods with song and prayer and grisly sacrifice. A thousand captive men were fed to the weirwood, one version of the tale goes, whilst another claims the children used the blood of their own young, and the old gods stirred, and giants awoke in the earth, and all of Westeros shook and trembled. Great cracks appeared in the earth, and hills and mountains collapsed and were swallowed up, and then the seas came rushing in, and the arm of dawn was broken and shattered by the force of the water, until only a few bare rocky islands remained above the waves, 
The summer sea joined the narrow sea, and the bridge between Essos and Westeros vanished for all time, or so the legend says. The legend has a lot of things that seem right. Blood sacrifice to weirwood trees involving the Isle of Faces and thus the Green Men, giants awakening in the earth, and the Hammer of the Waters. Now, although a weirwood may symbolize the moon, it is first and foremost a tree that grows in the earth. So to the extent that the weirwoods are giants, they certainly can be regarded as giants in the earth. So again, what I think is going on here is that when the moon meteor fell, it awoke giants in the earth in the sense of causing earthquakes and the collapse of the arm of Dorne, and it awoke the weirwood giants in the same sense that the thunderbolt meteor set fire to the tree, and thus the weirwood net. Something about the moon meteors affected the weirwood net, although we don't know exactly what this means yet. I do think it serves as a metaphor to describe Azor High as perhaps the first person to go into the weirwood net, opening it up for use by other green seers, but I think the meteors also have something more literal to do with the process as well. They could have had a toxic effect on the entire continent, as they appear to have done at Ashai, which is being mitigated by the weirwoods. Or it could be that the dark magic that seems to have been attached to the black meteors helped to facilitate Azor High's entrance into the weirwood net. If I am right that waking giants in the earth in part alludes to weirwoods being awoken, and I'm not the only one to think of this by any means, then this would further corroborate my growing suspicion that the meteor impacts had something to do with the carving of the faces in the trees. Consider this passage from A Dance with Dragons, when John is on his way to Molestown to feed some of the wildlings like a good corn king should, and he comes upon the last of three trees which the wildlings have given faces. Just north of Molestown, they came upon the third watcher, carved into the huge oak that marked the village parameter, its deep eyes fixed upon the king's road. That is not a friendly face, John Snow reflected. The faces that the first men and the children of the forest had carved into the weirwoods in eons past had stern or savage visages, more oft than not. But the great oak looked especially angry as if it were about to tear its roots from the earth and come roaring after them. Its wounds are as fresh as the wounds of the men who carved it. Note the emphasis on the men who carved the faces in the trees having wounds that are just like the tree's wounds. This likens the wounds of the carver and carvee, implying that the green seer carving the face must also be carved up and sacrificed, presumably to enter the tree. Now that the huge oak tree has a face, it's angry, and wants to literally wake from the earth and roar like a dragon, just like the giant in the Weirwood Grove. It's also worth noting that John explicitly talks about children and first men carving faces in the trees thousands of years ago. I think it's commonly thought that only the children carved faces, but not only did the first men of old carve faces in the Weirwoods, I suspect that only men, or perhaps we should say horned lords, carved the faces, despite what our 8,000-year-old oral history tells us. Or perhaps the children did carve them, but only after the meteors landed, and perhaps with the intent of trapping human green seers inside. I'm not 100% about this, but I have always doubted the idea of the children carving the faces before the first men arrived, as we are told. Now in the paragraph prior to seeing this freshly carved oak tree, John thinks about the wildlings who carved these faces, and recalls Mance telling him that some wildlings are shadow cats, and some are stones meaning that some are aggressive and dangerous, while others are stubborn and intransigent. 
but shadow cats play into the Lion of Night, Dark Solar King symbolism, and stones are stones. Saying that stones carved the tree is just another way of talking about the thunderbolt meteor which set fire to the tree. In the Lion of Night, carving the faces in the trees equates to Azor High as the dark solar figure carving the faces. We should also mention the symbolic import of this being an oak tree. That's the tree of the Summer King, so this is implying a Summer King Garth figure becoming a weirwood monster. Oaks are also strongly associated with Zeus, the Greek storm god who, like Thor, is famous for his lightning. There's a similar clue to be found on the Great Ranging, which we quoted in the Green Zombie series. That was the one in which the ranger named Bedwick, also called Giant, crammed himself inside the hollow of a dead oak and said, "'How'd you like my castle, Lord Snow?' We saw a giant scramble up the weirwood like a squirrel at White Tree Village, and the message would appear to be the same both times. It's showing a Night's Watch ranger becoming a tree giant by going inside of a tree. In one scene, giant is inside a dead oak, and in another scene, he's inside the weirwood, or climbing the weirwood, and so that would equate the dead oak with the weirwood. And that makes sense because oaks symbolize the Summer King, while weirwoods are aligned with the Winter King. A dead oak is a Summer King turning into a Winter King, and that's the same idea that we saw again with Garth Greyfeather, a Garth figure turning gray. As for the parallel between weirwoods and giants, a lot of it really revolves around Hodor. Yeah, we get to talk about Hodor! Woo! Just as Ghost will play the role of a weirwood in which John's spirit can go, Hodor serves the same role for Bran. He doesn't look like a weirwood as Ghost does, but he is a giant that Bran's skin changes into. The wicker basket, formerly used for hauling firewood, which Hodor uses to carry Bran around, serves to make Hodor the wicker cage, the same role played by the weirwoods. Hodor is a wicker cage in that he sometimes contains Bran's spirit, just as the weirwood will contain Bran's spirit. There's a great quote from A Game of Thrones about Bran hanging from the wicker cage as Hodor carries Bran into the godswood. Hodor made his way through the dense stands of oak and ironwood and sentinels to the still pool beside the heart tree. He stopped under the gnarled limbs of the weirwood, humming. Bran reached up over his head and pulled himself out of his seat, drawing the dead weight of his legs up through the holes in the wicker basket. He hung for a moment, dangling the dark red leaves brushing against his face, until Hodor lifted him and lowered him to the smooth stone beside the water. Hodor and the wicker basket combine to symbolize the weirwood, and here Bran is hanging and dangling from the basket like a hanged man. Having the weirwood leaves brush his face in this moment simply serves to further mingle Hodor and the wicker basket with the weirwood that they symbolize. It's implying Bran as dangling on the weirwood tree and telling us that this is comparable to being inside a wicker cage. Again, it's all death transformation stuff. Martin is mixing these metaphors to show us that they all speak of the same thing. Bran with weirwood leaves around his face could also be seen as simply foreshadowing Bran becoming the face inside the heart tree, and it may also be meant to imply Bran as having a sort of weirwood leaf crown here, just as the one weirwood in the Grove of Nine did. It also seems like the weirwood sort of reaching out with a bloody hand and marking Bran, smearing him with blood. It works on a lot of levels, though the hanging thing is what I want to draw attention to. We see a similar quote with Bran hanging from the basket in A Clash of Kings. Hodor, stand still. Bran grasped a wall sconce with both hands and used it to pull himself up and out of the basket. 
He hung for a moment by his arms until Hodor carried him to a chair. Despite the fact that Maester Lewin admonishes Bran that Hodor is not a mule to be beaten, Hodor does have extensive horse symbolism, smelling like horses and working in the stables, and most of all, having Bran ride him like a horse. This is where the fact that Yggdrasil can be a type of horse for Odin to ride comes in. Hodor is a wicker giant that Bran can slip inside or hang from, and he's also a horse that Bran can ride by merging his spirit with him. These quotes that have Bran hanging from Hodor's basket is just a sneaky way of bringing Odin's hanging symbolism on Yggdrasil into the mix. We noticed how Hodor always gets super riled up whenever lightning strikes, and that Bran's skin changing into Hodor is frequently linked to lightning. What's happening here is that Hodor is serving as a stand-in for a weirwood giant, being struck by lightning and possessed by a green seer, and then awakening as a mighty warrior. Bran serves as the lightning bolt which strikes the tree, and again this shows us that the green seer is the fire that sets the tree ablaze. Hodor also has two instances of one-eye symbolism, plus the sword and torch Mithras symbolism in that scene where Hodor was wandering through the caves with a sword and torch. Or was it Bran wandering, the text asks us. The reason why I'm sort of breezing through the Hodor and Bran giant thing is because we're going to talk about this when we talk about Sleipnir, another sort of horse that is not really a horse that Odin can ride. For now, I simply want to introduce to you that there is a whole line of symbolism comparing weirwoods to giants, and that this has a lot to do with waking giants in the earth and whatever occurred on the Isle of Faces. Now to wrap up this section, I want to address what could potentially be a point of confusion in regards to the trees correlating to the moon. In the sky, the comet impregnates the moon, a parallel to the green seer's spirit going into the tree. But then the cycle repeats as the moon meteor lands on earth and sets the tree on fire, and this too represents a green seer sending his spirit into the tree. The green seer's spirit is always the projectile, it seems, the comet that strikes the moon, or the thunderbolt meteor which strikes the tree. The confusion arises when we have a place like the Weirwood Grove of Nine, because it's simultaneously representing the moon struck by the comet, as well as the tree on Earth which is struck by the thunderbolt. The giant waking there depicts both giants waking in the moon, in the sense of giant meteor mountains that ride coming from the moon, and giants waking in the Earth, in the sense of the meteor impacts triggering earthquakes and setting fire to the Weirwood Net in some sense, waking the Weirwood Giants. It's actually very similar to the Sun plus Moon equals Azora High Reborn cycle. An Azora High Reborn character will have parents that symbolize the Sun and Moon, but they in turn will go back to square one and then act like a Sun or Moon themselves and will repeat the cycle with their own partners. That's one reason why we see all the characters transform from one thing to another. As always, I tend to rely on the text of a given chapter to indicate what a given character is symbolizing at any given moment. When Gregor fights Oberyn, he's showing us the moon being stabbed and then becoming falling moon mountains. But when Gregor strikes Beric's ribs with his lance and leaves a crater, as we saw in the last episode, his lance is playing the role of the falling moon meteor, and Beric is playing the role of the tree set on fire by a meteor impact. Beric's burning sword, however, can in turn symbolize a fiery moon meteor or comet in its own right, and when it does, Martin will give us the clues to show us that that's what's happening. Bran is a great example, as I mentioned. When he climbs up to where the sun and moon are making love, he's acting like the comet. When he falls, he's acting like the thunderbolt. So when he possesses Hodor, you could see Bran as the comet getting inside the moon, 
or as the lightning getting inside the tree. So, the comet sets the moon on fire, then the moon meteor sets the tree on fire. It's a cycle. That's why I often call A Song of Ice and Fire a fractal story. It can be a little confusing, but it's really cool, and hopefully I'm explaining it in a way that makes some amount of sense. The Grove at Ground Zero. This section is sponsored by our first Guardian of the Galaxy, the Shadowcat Patron, and he is Sir Harrison of House Casterly, the Noontide Sun, whose words are deeper than did ever plummet sound. We've studied a lot of Lightbringer bonfires by now, scenes which depict the forging of Lightbringer, and we've seen many times that a burning tree symbol is created right in the thick of things. There is a simple yet profound truth being expressed here. The burning tree is created at the same place Lightbringer is forged. The same location which depicts the landing of a moon meteor also depicts a burning tree. We just saw that with the Weirwood Grove of Nine, and it's the same with the Weirwood Ribs of the Sea Dragon on Old Wick, which symbolize both the landing of a Sea Dragon meteor and the arrival of a Green Seer who possesses godly fire and lives inside the Weirwoods. At the end of Weirwood Compendium 1, The Grey King and the Sea Dragon, we looked at pretty much all of the major Lightbringer forging scenes, and we saw that some kind of burning tree or weirwood symbol is present. We saw that, over and over again, burning wood of symbolic import gives birth to fiery dancers and sorcerers, and most importantly, Azora High Reborn as a being of living fire. This is the crux of the story about the thunderbolt striking the tree and setting it ablaze. This is ground zero of the meteor impact, and this is where we find the origins of the burning tree which transfers the fire of the gods to man. This is where Azor Ahai is reborn, and this is where Lightbringer is forged. This is the spot where Azor Ahai enters the Weirwood Net. It pretty much all happens right here. Now we'll refresh our memory with the two most important examples of Lightbringer bonfires. At Stannis and Melisandre's staged Lightbringer ceremony, the weirwood burning tree symbols were the wooden statues of the Seven. They are carved wooden gods, sort of like the weirwoods, and they used to be the masts of the ships which carried the first Targaryens to Dragonstone, which makes them sea dragon trees. Recall that the petrified weirwood ribs of the sea dragon are compared to white trees and the masts of huge ships both. So again, suggestive of weirwoods. Here is the operative quote where they are set on fire. The morning air was dark with the smoke of burning gods. They were all afire now. Maid and mother, warrior and smith. The crone with her pearl eyes and the father with his gilded beard. Even the stranger carved to look more animal than human. The old dry wood and countless layers of paint and varnish blazed with a fierce hungry light. The carved wooden sea dragon gods blaze with a fierce hungry light and cast a pretty light, but they also make the morning air dark with the smoke of burning gods. This is a perfect model of the ground zero impact zone of the Lightbringer meteors. They blaze with light, but they fill the air with darkness. Like the flames of Stannis's sword in the scene, they soon die and leave behind a burnt sword. And all that smoke. But again, the point is that we see a burning tree symbol here in the middle of the pyre. At Danny's alchemical wedding in A Game of Thrones, some amount of care and attention was used in the placement of the logs, 
They're laid north to south, which is called ice to fire, and east to west, which she calls sunrise to sunset. The payoff quote comes when they are lit on fire, of course. And there came a second crack, loud and sharp as thunder, and the smoke stirred and whirled around her, and the pyre shifted, the logs exploding as the fire touched their secret hearts. That's the Thunderbolt Dragon Egg, followed by the logs with secret hearts being touched by fire. That's pretty explicit as far as symbolism goes. The Weirwoods were struck by lightning and had their hearts touched by fire, directly in connection with the moon dragon's hatching. The rising smoke symbol that we saw at Dragonstone with the smoke darkening the morning air is depicted here as well. The pyre collapses with a belch of flame and smoke that reached 30 feet into the sky, and Drogo is clad in wisps of floating orange silk and tendrils of curling smoke, gray and greasy. And finally, the smoke is remarked upon as driving the Dothraki away. So, burning trees produce the rising smoke, and so do meteor impacts. In some sense, the weirwood is a burning tree that was set on fire by the meteor impacts. But here's the thing. The rising smoke symbol is frequently accompanied by a cloud of rising ash. And in the scenario of a meteor impact, you'd get a lot of both. The column of rising ash emerging from the moon meteor impacts is a symbol which is significant in its own right, because I believe that it's serving as yet another reference to Yggdrasil, which is an ash tree. That's right. Weirwoods look like burning trees, and the burning tree is a symbol of a weirwood. Weirwoods are heavily inspired by Yggdrasil, and although Yggdrasil is not a burning tree, it is an ash tree. Kind of feel like blowing a trumpet or something. This is kind of a big deal. Martin is getting a good mileage out of the wordplay here, an ash is, of course, a type of tree with a light gray bark, which happens to be excellent for making things like spear shafts or bass guitars, such as my own 75 reissue Fender Jazz Bass. But a burning tree will also produce ash, will be transformed into ash, and thus a burning tree can be considered an ash tree in a manner of speaking. Weirwoods are both burning trees and Yggdrasil trees, so you begin to see how this works. Ash trees can be used to symbolize Yggdrasil, and thus a weirwood. And when we see ash trees in suspicious places in A Song of Ice and Fire, we should think about Yggdrasil and the weirwoods. For example, when Beric is dealt his first mortal wound, that impalement by the mountain's lance which left the crater wound, he was taken to a grove of ash trees to die, and then to be resurrected by Thoros. That's why we get this line from Beric, which we quoted in the Green Zombie series. Sometimes I think I was born on the bloody grass in that grove of ash, with the taste of fire in my mouth and a hole in my chest. Sometimes I think Azor High was reborn in that symbolic grove of ash known as the Weirwood Net. I think that a lot lately, because that's what's being implied here and elsewhere with fiery sorcerers emerging from Lightbringer bonfires, burning sea dragons, burning wooden gods, and other symbols of the burning tree. Beric is pretty well established as a resurrected Greenseer symbol and an Odin figure, so this talk of him being reborn in a grove of ash cannot really be coincidence. Rather, the ash trees here are simply another Odin reference which enhances the message. Azor High was reborn through the Weirwood Net, just as Odin was reborn on an ash tree. 
The idea of the grove of ash trees rising all around him makes him sound like he's in the middle of a bonfire or a smoking crater, with ash rising in columns all around him. But because those ash trees also symbolize Yggdrasil and thus the Weirwoods, the scene here also evokes the Weirwood Grove of Nine that we were just hanging out in. Inside Barrack's Grove of Ash, we have the resurrection of an Azor High figure who represents a burning tree sorcerer and a moon meteor. And inside the Weirwood Grove of Nine, we saw symbolic depictions of the Weirwood Net awakening and moon meteors being born. This Grove of Ash is another version of Ground Zero, in other words, and we can see how the ash trees do double duty by depicting both the rising ash as well as the presence of magical trees. Barak's mortal lance-in-the-chest wound, meanwhile, is very suggestive of the spear which impaled Odin on Yggdrasil. Recall that Arya says that the lance went through him and left a scar on both sides of his ribcage. Arya also describes Gregor's lance as having left a crater in Barak's ribcage, as we mentioned, which means that Barak's wound is suggesting both a meteor impact crater and Odin's impalement on the tree. In other words, this scene in the Grove of Ash seems to be primarily showing us the terrestrial version of setting the tree on fire. Barak seems to be playing the tree struck by lightning here, with the mountain's lance as the moon meteor which set the tree on fire. This is another message to us that the landing of the moon meteor and the creation of the burning tree sorcerer are connected. The breast wound also suggests Barak as a Nissa Nissa figure, one who obviously transforms into Azor High Reborn, just like Daenerys does. Barak does light his blade on fire with his own blood, just like Nissa Nissa lights Lightbringer on fire with her blood. So there you go. Gregor is also the one who put out Barak's eye, and this would be more like the celestial version of events, where Barak's eye is playing the role of the moon, and the knife is acting like the comet. Again, this alludes to the comet-moon explosion event, leading to an Odin-like transformation for... someone. We've seen both sun and moon characters get it, which I suppose makes sense. The moon meteors can be seen as a resurrected sun or a resurrected moon character, Azor High Reborn or Nissa Nissa Reborn. Also, because the sun and moon were in alignment, the eye-blinding analogy can be applied to sun and moon people alike. Perhaps the simplest way to say it is that the eye-blinding represents the conjunction of sun and moon, just as the burning tree does. Both sun and moon have to be sacrificed in order to be transformed, and both green seer and tree were transformed when the first green seers carved the first faces and wedded the trees. Martin has left us yet another clue that we should connect Beric's rebirth in the Grove of Ash to Odin, and that's the parallel this scene has to Bloodraven's loss of his eye at Redgrass Field. Redgrass Field was of course named for the blood shed there when Bloodraven's armies and others fought against those of the Blackfires. Bloodraven received his Odin makeover on the bloody grass, in other words, just as Beric speaks of having been born on the bloody grass. And in this way, Bloodraven's and Beric's Odin transformations are linked to one another. Now, blades of grass stained red by blood are also, of course, suggestive of Lightbringer, the bloody red blade, and this analogy was also implied in that song about the last of Darius Ten that Brienne and Catelyn hear in A Clash of Kings, which is a song about red grass, red banners, a red setting sun, and a thirsty sword. So, once again, in the same place, we find Lightbringer symbolism, Azor High Reborn symbolism, and lots of Weirwood, Greenseer, and Odin symbolism. Most importantly for our purposes at this moment, the Grove of Ash is simultaneously depicting rising columns of smoke and ash, as well as the idea of the magical tree. Say it with me.
But wait, there's more. You will recall that most of the spears which symbolize Lightbringer are made of ash wood. There's Oberyn's sun spear that he used in his fight with the mountain, the one with a steel blade coated in oily black poison. We spent a lot of time talking about those ashwood spears topped with the severed heads of the Night's Watch brothers that John and company find north of the wall in a dance with dragons, staring out through those black and bloody eye sockets. All of these ash spears served to create the image of a trail of ash behind a smoking meteor or comet. The bloody Night's Watch brothers' heads are like the head of a bleeding star, and the oily black blade topping Oberyn's spear is a great callout to the oily black stone, which seems to be closely connected to the moon meteors. Now we can see that these ashwood spears can serve double duty once they are planted in the ground, creating the image of an ash tree, and thus a weirwood tree. Especially when you stick a bloody eyeless head on them. I mean, these really create the image of a heart tree, with the severed, eye-gouged heads mimicking the heart tree's carved bloody face and bloody tears, and the ashwood spears providing the tree trunk and the reference to Yggdrasil. And look, I don't want to blow your mind or anything here, but duty compels me to mention that one of those decapitated rangers was named Garth. That's right, it was Garth Greyfeather as a matter of record. He's now become an ashwood Garth tree with a bloody carved face, a terrific clue about Garth people, horned lords, going into the weirwoods, and again I wonder if the implication is that they were the first, the ones who gave the trees faces. In any case, we've been saying how the words weir and garth are in some cases interchangeable, and here you see a vivid example of Martin making use of this. A garth head plus an ashwood spear equals a weirwood symbol. The name garth greyfeather implies a green garth type turning into a gray king azor high type from summer to winter king, which makes a lot of sense, since that's what seems to be going on at this moment of the Horned Lord being sacrificed and entering the Weirwood. The other two heads belong to Harry Hal and Blackjack Bulwer. In the Green Zombie series, we said that the name Harry Hal was probably a nod to the Wild Man of the Woods, a variety of Green Man folklore, and Blackjack Bulwer, well, that guy is loaded with symbolism. House Bulwer was founded by a son of Garth the Green, Boris the Breaker, who drank so much bull's blood, he grew a pair of shiny black horns. In other words, this is blood-drinking, dark-horned lord stuff. I believe this is more like who the horned lord became after entering the net, more akin to Gendry's fiery bull symbolism. The idea of a bull-horned person being trapped in the weirwood net again brings up the notion of Winterfell as a labyrinth and a stone tree, which might contain some sort of minotaur, a monstrous bullman, and that's a topic that we'll have to return to another time. We should also note that the name Blackjack is a nice way to imply someone who used to be green, like a Jack in the Green figure, but who has turned black. It's very similar to the idea of a Garth turning gray. So taken together, these three Night's Watch rangers turned weirwood symbols are all depicting the idea of green men and horned lords who have been sacrificed to become part of the tree, who have even become the faces on the trees. Let's return to the other main Ashwood Lightbringer symbol, Oberyn's Spear. There are actually two symbols of rising smoke and ash at that trial by combat. The first is Gregor's bloody and smoking rising fist that ruined Oberyn's solar face, and the second one has to do with Oberyn's Spear. Remember the part of the fight near the end when the Red Viper pins the moon mountain that rides to the ground with his spear? 
I pointed out at the time that that broken-off ashwood shaft sticking up out of Gregor's chest makes a great image of the column of ash rising from the site of the meteor impact. But now that we're thinking about Yggdrasil as a column of ash, an ash tree, we can see that this wooden column of ash is also likely meant to symbolize the ash tree Yggdrasil. Once again, a weirwood symbol appears at the exact spot of a fallen moon meteor. Now, the reason why this works so well is because Azorahai the moon meteor is reborn on Earth at the site of the impact, and Azorahai the person or group of people were reborn by entering the burning tree, which is the weirwood net. Another reason why this works so well is because the falling meteor represents one form of the fire of the gods and the burning tree the other. And finally, the rising smoke and ash clouds are what darkened the sun, swallowing it and transforming it into the dark sun. And the ash tree, Weirdrasil, if you will, is what transformed Azor High into the dark solar king figure, swallowing the sun king's life fires. This last one is important, so I'll say it again. The ash and smoke of the meteor impact is what eats the sun, just as the weirwood net eats Azor High. Thus, it makes sense to have the rising ash cloud symbolize a weirwood tree. Another high-profile ashwood weapon is Ario Hota's long axe, whose shaft is called Mountain Ash, which we took as a clue about Sir Gregor the Mountain being like a falling meteor trailing ash. Mountain Ash, as it happens, is a variety of ash tree also called a Rowan. And Rowan Gold Tree happens to be the name of another one of the children of Garth the Green. I mean, that's worth noting in and of itself. One of Garth's children was a tree woman named after the ash tree. One of Mance's six spearwives that comes with him to Winterfell in A Dance with Dragons was also named Rowan. And naturally, she has flaming red, kissed-by-fire hair, just to encourage us to connect the idea of an ash tree woman to that of a burning tree woman. She also tries to seduce Theon, who is playing some kind of a Grey King role at this point in the story, and that makes sense because we believe that the Grey King wedded the burning tree. As for Arya Hota, he calls that axe his Ash and Iron Wife, implying Hota as someone who has wed the ash tree and can use it as a weapon. When he touches it in A Feast for Crows, it says, The ash felt as smooth as a woman's skin against his palm. All of these ideas, from the maidens named Rowan to Arya's Ash and Iron Wife, help to associate the Weirwoods with women, which makes sense because Azor High has to marry them. Of course, Hota's Ashen Iron Wife is surmounted by a wicked sharp blade, and this represents the moon meteor head trailing ash, just as the severed heads and just as Oberon's blade did. Speaking of falling stars and ash trees, remember that tomb of King Christopher, the Hammer of Justice at Old Stones? The place where they hanged Merit Frey and Peter Pimple? Rob actually sees it a bit earlier in A Storm of Swords. Yet in the centre of what once would have been the castle's yard, a great carved sepulchre still rested, half hidden in waist-high brown grass, amongst a stand of ash. Dun-dun-dun! This Christopher, or should we call him Lucifer, dropped the Hammer of Justice, or perhaps we might say the Hammer of Just Ice, as in Icy Comets and Ned's Sword Ice, which is compared to the Red Comet. The hammer's dead body is surrounded by columns of ash, just as Barracks was, and this encourages us to think about this as Ground Zero, and of the dead Hammer King as a symbol of Azor High. There are, of course, more clues to reinforce the symbolism here, to be found on the tomb.
The stone itself was cracked and crumbling at the corners, discoloured here and there by spreading white splotches of lichen, while wild roses crept up over the king's feet almost to his chest. It's white and red, in other words, with white lichen and wild roses, which are presumably red. Weirwood colouring. The plants growing over his tomb have to remind us of the weirwood roots that grow over an enthroned green seer. They are swallowing the tomb like the trees swallow the green seer. And although the ash trees surrounding the tomb show us the rising ash symbol, we actually get a more direct representation of a smoke cloud rising from this tomb that wants to be a burning tree, as Grey Wind famously leaps atop the tomb and growls when the conversation becomes heated between Rob and Catelyn. That's Grey Wind, the smoke-dark direwolf, leaping atop the weirwood-colored sepulchre to complete the diagram of the burning tree in which the hammer dropper rests. Perhaps most importantly, let's talk about the carved face. The lid of the sepulchre had been carved into a likeness of the man whose bones lay beneath. The weirwood net is like a sepulchre for green seers, and like Tristopher's sepulchre, the faces carved on the weirwoods probably express the likeness of the man or woman whose bones lie beneath the tree and whose spirit lies within. You'll recall that Theon momentarily perceives the Winterfell heart tree as having Bran's face. Or you might recall John's dream of seeing a weirwood with Bran's face who helps him to open his third eye by poking him in the forehead just as the three-eyed crow does to Bran. In the very first description of the Winterfell tree that we get in A Game of Thrones, which we quoted earlier, the face was described as long and melancholy, which are both words often used to describe the signature Stark look. The implication is that the Stark weirwood tree contains more than a few dead Starks, and therefore looks a bit like one, and more broadly, that the faces on the weirwoods are indeed the faces of the green seers inside them. To the extent that the weirwoods are traps, like a fishing weir or a fish garth, the face on the tree is the face of a prisoner trapped inside, like a horror movie where the monsters are trapped behind the walls, but try to push through. I think that's the face of the Red Wanderer, Azora High, the Horned Lord, looking back at us. A former Garth who went into the trees. The other thing to note about the idea of Christopher the Hammer Dropper trapped in the weirwood net is that there is symbolism here which places John inside the sepulchre, likening him to King Hammer and Beric and the general idea of Azor High trapped in the weirwood tomb, which we already associate him with. First, this is the place where Rob has that conversation with Catelyn about making Jon Snow his heir as King in the North. That's really the primary thing that happens in this scene by Christopher's tomb. They talk about Jon Snow. Second, the white lichen on the sepulchre may well be meant to imply the white wolf of that same Lord Snow, because of the potential lichen-lycanthropy wordplay, based on the Greek word for wolf, leukos. Think of the Underworld movies, where the werewolves are called lichens. L-Y-C-A-N-S instead of L-I-C-H-E-N-S, but it sounds the same. The phrase white lichen may therefore be meant to suggest a white werewolf, or a wolfman, drawing a parallel between ghost and the sepulchre, with both symbolizing weirwood tombs. I should also point out that the word weir is very similar to the word were, as in werewolf. The were in werewolf means man, so man-wolf. And this would make the trees, the werewoods, man-trees. That's probably something Martin intended, since wolf skin changers are basically Martin's version of werewolves, and green seers are just skin changing the weirwoods. So, Christopher and Beric both lay dead in a grove of ash, though of course Beric rose again. 
Christopher is called the Hammer of Justice. Barak is called the Lightning Lord. I think you can see where this is headed. It's yet another clue about the Hammer of the Waters and the Storm God's Thunderbolt being part of the same event. The guy who is buried in the Grove of Ash, inside the Weirwood Net, is the guy who called down the Hammer of the Waters and the Thunderbolt. Again, I offer the usual caveats. We speak of an individual, but we are really talking about Azor High and his crew, his group of Horned Lords, or we may be simply talking about a group or tribe of Azor Ahai-type Horned Lords. All of this about Azor Ahai going into the Weirwood Net could essentially be referring to the group of original Green Seers who went into the trees. Pretty soon we'll follow up on the Long Night's Watch episode and return to the topic of The Last Heroes 12, and we'll discuss this further. But before we get to that, we need to stick with the basic idea of Azor Ahai going into the Weirwood Net. Now we're going to go visit some of our very favorite Lightbringer bonfires, yet again, and we're going to uncover entirely new symbolism which has been under our nose the whole time. An Ember in the Ashes This larger-than-average section is brought to you by the faithful Patreon support of two priestesses of the Church of Starry Wisdom, Enovi Shadowbinder from the Eastern Mountains and Lakes, and Lord Commander Daenerys Flint of the Nightfort, who is also the Lord Commander of the History of Westeros Night's Watch, whose words are, Avenging the memory of brave Danny. Let there be no doubt, Azor High is in the Weirwood Net. This is directly alluded to by Melisandre in A Storm of Swords, when she is preaching the good word about our Lord and Savior Azor High Reborn. It is night in your seven kingdoms now, the Red Woman went on. But soon the sun will rise again. The war continues, Davos Seaworth, and some will soon learn that even an ember in the ashes can still ignite a great blaze. An ember in the ashes, you say? That's Azor High, waiting to be reborn from the Weirwood Net. If you think about it, this is simply saying the same thing that we've already concluded. Azor High is the ember in the ash tree, the fire inside the Weirwood. He's the snake under Yggdrasil. He's the thunderbolt that set fire to the tree. He's the comet that impregnated the moon. He's the face on the weirwood tomb, the red wanderer watching us through the branches. The slice of sun swallowed by the trees, or by the moon. Given what we've seen Martin do with the ash tree as a symbol uniting weirwoods and Yggdrasil, can this language about Azor High as an ember in the ashes really be coincidence? I mean, you know how this is going to go. Yes. It could be coincidence, but I'm implying that it is not, and now we're going to spend the next 20 minutes taking a look at all the reasons why I think it's intentional and meaningful. I will do this while trying to be amusing, and maybe even impressing you with the occasional rhetorical flourish or show of wit, which may or may not be successful. So let's do this. The most vivid fulfillment of Azor Ahai Reborn as an ember in the ashes comes from one of the most important manifestations of Azor Ahai Reborn, Daenerys Targaryen, at one of our most familiar Lightbringer forging scenes, the Alchemical Wedding. We already saw the logs with secret hearts touched by fire when the second egg cracked like thunder, so we know there is Weirwood being set on fire action here. Now let's take a look at the aftermath. The third crack was as loud and sharp as the breaking of the world. When the fire died at last, and the ground became cool enough to walk upon, Sir Jorah Mormont found her amidst the ashes. Surrounded by blackened logs and bits of glowing ember, and the burnt bones of man and woman and stallion, she was naked 
covered with soot, her clothes turned to ash, her beautiful hair all crisped away, yet she was unheard. The cream and gold dragon was suckling at her left breast, the green and bronze at the right. Her arms cradled them close. The black and scarlet beast was draped across her shoulders, its long sinuous neck coiled under her chin. When it saw Jorah, it raised its head and looked at him with eyes as red as coals. Danny and Drogon match here. Danny is covered in soot and therefore blackened like Drogon and like black moon meteors. Her clothes, however, have been turned to ash, suggesting her as clothed in ash or formerly clothed in ash. Earlier, as she walked into the firestorm, it said, Bits of burning wood slid down at her, and Danny was showered with ash and cinder, which again gives us the idea of Danny being covered in ash, as if she were inside an ash tree. And this comes right next to a burning tree symbol, the burning wood. More obviously, reborn Daenerys and the coal-eyed Drogon are quite literally sitting amidst the ashes of Drogo's pyre with the other coals and embers, a vivid depiction of Melisandre's promise of Azor High and Lightbringer being reborn like an ember in the ashes, ready to spark a great conflagration. Now, if there's anyone ready to start a big fire, I would think it would be Drogon being ridden by a wrathful Daenerys. Seems like a safe bet that we'll be getting more of that in the last two books, so watch out. In the last quote, did you notice that Drogon's long, sinuous neck coiled under Danny's chin like a noose? That serves nicely to liken her rebirth and transcendence of death here amidst the ashes to Odin's hanging on the ash tree. Yggdrasil can also be a stallion, and here in the ashes we see the bones of a burnt stallion, which translates to a burning or burnt tree, and the blackened logs and burning embers reinforce the burning tree motif. Drogo also appeared to ride a smoky stallion out of the pyre and into the stars, encouraging us to connect the idea of being reborn and riding horses to the stars. Those are just the things that Odin does on his gallows horse Yggdrasil, which allows a sacrificed and reborn Odin to traverse the Nine Realms. So, besides the other allusions to weirwoods, like the logs with secret hearts, we have three possible Yggdrasil references here. The ash, the hanging, and the riding a horse to the stars idea. As a preview of an upcoming episode, I'll just mention that Odin has another horse involved with astral travel, the famous Sleipnir. We'll be coming right back to this very scene to delve into the connection between astral travel and riding horses then, and that's going to be a lot of fun. All right, Danny and Drogon are reborn as embers in the ashes. Next up, the other most important manifestation of Azor Ahai Reborn, Jon Snow. We've been talking about how Jon is almost certainly within Ghost the Weirwood-colored direwolf at this very long minute that we all live in, suspended between novels, so Jon should be an ember in the ashes too, and I believe that we see this in the form of the eyes of Ghost. In Book 1, Ghost is described as having eyes like embers in one scene and eyes that burned red as embers in another. In A Storm of Swords, when Jon reunites with Ghost after their long separation, it says... His eyes caught the last light and shone like two great red suns. Essentially, I am suggesting that John will be the ember inside Ghost, the dying and reborn red sun alluded to in Bran's chapter, the one which ends in the sacrifice to the weirwood. The line about Ghost's eyes looking like two red suns is followed by this bit of John's inner monologue. Red eyes, John realized, but not like Melisandre's. He had a weirwood's eyes. Red eyes, red mouth, 
White fur, blood and bone, like a heart tree. He belongs to the old gods, this one. Ghost has eyes like red suns, and the weirwoods have eyes like ghost. And I would say this is indicative of the idea of the weirwoods swallowing the sun, as they did in John's weirwood grove of nine scene. It's the same thing when ghost has eyes like embers. Ghost symbolizes a weirwood, and the ember in the weirwoods is Azora High, played by John in this instance. Just like the slice of sun swallowed by the trees, and like the red wanderer watching us from the trees, John will be the ember inside his weirwood wolf, waiting to be reborn and ignite a great blaze. Now the distinction between Ghost and Mel is drawn here, I believe, because this is the moment when John is trying to decide whether or not to burn the Winterfell heart tree and take Stannis' offer to become John Stark, Lord of Winterfell, and Ghost reminding John of the Weirwoods is what helps him decide not to accept. However, in another scene, it's just the opposite. Instead of a distinction between Ghost and Mel, we see a similarity and an affinity. That would be the very strange scene in A Dance with Dragons, where Ghost comes to Melisandre's beckon, but won't come back to John when called. John let out a white breath. He's not always so. Warm. Warmth calls to warmth, Jon Snow. Her eyes were two red stars, shining in the dark. At her throat, her ruby gleamed, a third eye glowing brighter than the others. John had seen Ghost's eyes blazing red the same way, when they caught the light just right. Ghost, he called, to me. The direwolf looked at him as if he were a stranger. Indeed, Ghost and Melisandre do have a lot of symbolic overlap, because Melisandre represents the Nissa Nissa moon, and Ghost represents a weirwood, and we've seen that those two play much the same role, swallowing the sun and acting as a fiery womb for Azor High's rebirth. I just proposed that Ghost has eyes like embers to symbolize the idea of him swallowing John's spirit, his life fires, and more broadly because the weirwood net swallowed Azor High. Mel has red stars in her eyes for much the same reason, because the Nissa Nissa moon swallowed a comet, and Nissa Nissa the woman swallowed Lightbringer the red sword. Moving right along, but sticking with the same idea, you remember that quote from A Dance with Dragons about Tyrion seeing the giant, monstrous red moon that looked as though it had swallowed the sun and taken a fever? The embers in the ashes symbolism makes a notable appearance in the line which immediately preceded that one. Amidships, Makoro sat by his brazier, where a few small flames still danced amongst the embers. Here we have a burnt black fire sorcerer staring at fiery dancers and embers, which would presumably be resting amongst ashes, while the moon looks to have swallowed the sun. And did I mention they're sailing by Valyria? We always see the fiery dancers appear with some kind of weirwood symbolism, and here they're dancing around the embers, almost as if to resurrect them or to aid Azor Ahai's passage into the trees. And this would work in parallel to Tyrion seeing the moon swallowed by the sun. Shout out to Unchained on the Westeros.org forums, who's done some really great writing on this topic lately, which has been of use here. Hi, Unchained. Now, regarding the subject of the dancers, you'll note that the tale of blood sacrifice on the Isle of Faces that was supposedly used to call down the hammer speaks of song and dance and grisly sacrifice, a clue that dancing and weirwood sacrifice might go together. We'll have to talk about dancing and singing another time, probably when we talk about horn blowing, but of course it does remind us of Odin and shamanic ecstasy, always accompanied by singing, dancing, chanting, and drumming. Next up, we have Bloodraven, 
who was our most physical and literal manifestation of a blood-of-the-dragon-green-seer person living inside the trees. He too shows us the language of an ember or coal in a dead fire. Seated on his throne of roots in the great cavern, half corpse and half tree, Lord Brynden seemed less a man than some ghastly statue made of twisted wood, old bone and rotted wool. The only thing that looked alive in the pale ruin that was his face was his one red eye, burning like the last coal in a dead fire. Surrounded by twisted roots and tatters of leathery white skin, hanging off a yellowed skull. A ghastly statue made of wood and bone, of tree and green seer, and just a tiny bit of fire. The only part of Blood Raven that appears alive at this moment is his red eye, described here as the last coal in a dead fire. That's very similar to the quote from The Alchemical Wedding, where Danny and Baby Drogon, with his eyes red as coals, were found when the fire had died at last. That dead fire is not quite dead, however, and it's ready to ignite a great blaze. Essentially, it's an allusion to a red sun which sets but rises again. There's a matching quote to this one about the last coal in a dead fire from the Weirwood Grove of Nine scene, also in A Dance with Dragons. In the moment before the giant wakes, we read... The fire in the center of the grove was a small sad thing. Ashes and embers and a few broken branches burning slowly and smoky. Even then, it had more life than the wildlings huddled near it. Only one of them reacted when John stepped from the brush. That was the child, who began to wail, clutching at his mother's ragged cloak. The woman raised her eyes and gasped. By then, the grove was ringed by rangers sliding past the bone-white trees, steel glinting in black-gloved hands, poised for slaughter. Now on their way out of the grove, that same fire is called the faint red glow of a dying fire in the center of the grove. It makes sense to equate the alive-but-dead fire in Blood Raven's eye with this ashes-and-embers dying fire here in the Weirwood Grove, because they are both representing the scrap of sunfire smoldering inside the Weirwood, animating it with its life fire. And because this weirwood grove of nine containing the dying fire is playing the role of the moon, it also links Blood Raven's eye with the moon, just as we saw with Maynard Plum's moonstone brooch and the scene at the night fort with the weirwood pulling the moon down into the well. Also appearing in this quote, Nissa Nissa's wail, though placed in the child's mouth, which is fine, it doesn't have to be exact every time or probably be too robotic. Miri Mazdur gave us the scream at the alchemical wedding instead of Danny, which is fine too. It's enough to place the scream in the same location at the right moment as it is here. Remember that the child's wail seems to be what awoke the giant, just as Nissa Nissa's cry is said to have broken the moon. I'd also like to call attention to the symbol of the broken branch. The fire here is ashes and embers and a few broken branches. I believe the broken branch symbol is similar to the broken sword symbol. Recall Sir Waymar's broken sword from the A Game of Thrones prologue. It was twisted and splintered like a tree struck by lightning, which unites the broken sword symbol and the lightning-struck burning tree symbol, and in the hands of someone who is acting a lot like the last hero, as Sir Waymar does. Furthermore, I would say that the broken branch generally refers to the idea of Azor Ahai, the dead greenseer. For example, 
One of the best fiery dancer scenes was from John's chapter in A Clash of Kings, where he and Corrin Halfhand built a fire the night before being caught by the wildlings, and the broken branches feature quite prominently. John went to cut more branches, snapping each one in two before tossing it into the flames. The tree had been dead a long time, but it seemed to live again in the fire as fiery dancers woke within each stick of wood to whirl and spin in their glowing gowns of yellow, red, and orange. The broken branch is the dead green seer in need of fiery resurrection. That's what I'm seeing. A broken branch is like a dead tree that lives again in the fire as a fiery dancer, and elsewhere, such as the alchemical wedding, those fiery dancers are also fiery sorcerers. Now, at the end of this chapter... Corrin's body is burned on a pyre made from more broken branches, which encourages us to draw a link between the fire at the beginning of this chapter with the resurrected wood and Corrin's funeral pyre. This would suggest that the fire undead green seer is a Night's Watch brother, an idea that we've had already. This would be the last hero that we're talking about. Now think about the dying fire in the Weirwood Grove, made of broken branches and ashes and embers, and you can see a possible foreshadowing of a pyre for John's resurrection inside the grove. One last note on the broken branch. It could be a hint about a branching of a family tree, as in the naughty green seers who split off from the green men to become the Azor High people. They would be like the broken branch of the family tree, perhaps. Okay, moving along, it turns out that King's Landing is a great place to find Azor High reborn amidst the ashes, which is fitting, because the phrase King's Landing, which describes the landing of Aegon the Dragon on Westeros proper, serves as a perfect metaphor for the landing of Azor Ahai Reborn, the Black Dragon Meteor. You'll recall the scenes there during the Battle of the Blackwater, with Tyrion and Stannis filling the air with the smoke of burning trees to the extent that the moon and stars cannot be seen, and how Sansa piled onto that symbolism when she burned her moonblood-soaked sheets and mattress and filled her chamber with smoke. That's a big part of the symbolism of King's Landing. It's a major symbol of meteor impact ground zero. Thus, it is fitting that we will see resurrected Renly, Tyrion, and Robert all get the Ember in the Ashes treatment here, with a special guest appearance by the Red Viper of Dorne over in Martell. We'll start with Ser Dantos' account of resurrected Renly's ride at the Battle of the Blackwater. They came up the Rose Road and along the riverbank, through all the fields Stannis had burned, the ashes puffing up around their boots and turning all their armour grey. But oh, the banners must have been bright, the golden rose and golden lion and all the others, the marbran tree and the rowan, Tarly's huntsman and Redwine's grapes and Lady Oakheart's leaf. He also says, They came up through the ashes while the river was burning, just to make it clear. The knights, described as howling like demons in steel and led by a fiery, demonic, resurrected Renly, came up through the ashes of the trees burned by Stannis, as if they had ridden straight out of hell or the underworld. Take note of the banners, Rowan, meaning mountain ash, and Marbrand, whose sigil is a burning tree, orange and smoke, whose lords wear flaming tree logos and capes of gray smoke, and who live inside a castle called Ashmark, naturally. That's a great indication that Martin wants us to think about burning trees in conjunction with people who live inside of ashes. We also get a Tarly Huntsman to reinforce the Horned Lord ideas, and a couple of fertility symbols from houses descended of Garth the Green in the Red Wine Grapes and Oakheart Leaf. 
But above all, this is a depiction of resurrected Renly as a fiery, demonic-horned lord being reborn through ashes and burning trees. All right, now in a storm of swords, Tyrion and Pod Payne and a few others are greeting the Dornish company and welcoming them to King's Landing, and the Dornish ride through that very same burnt section of the Kingswood. He could see their banners flying as the riders emerged from the green of the living wood in a long, dusty column. From here to the river, only bare black trees remained, a legacy of his battle. Too many banners, he thought sourly, as he watched the ashes kick up under the hooves of the approaching horses, as they had beneath the hooves of the Tyrell van, as it smashed Stannis in the flank. This is all about the Red Viper Oberyn Martell, a well-known incarnation of Azor Ahai, with an emphasis on the snake and spear symbolism of the comet. He emerges from the green of the living wood and passes into the wilderness of ash and charcoal and dead trees, as Sansa refers to the Kingswood in another chapter. That sounds like the backstory of Azor Ahai, who started out as a green seer and possibly a green man, but entered the ash tree and emerged transformed. The Martell troops are compared to resurrected Renly's Tyrell troops, who also showed us green man and burning tree symbolism with their banners. Take note of the confluence of horse riding and kicking up ash. That's a clever way of symbolizing Yggdrasil, the ash tree which is also a gallows horse. When Oberyn arrives, he's riding a stallion black as sin, with a mane and tail the color of fire. And even more tellingly, it says Oberyn sat his saddle as if he'd been born there. He was born on a flaming horse, in other words. This is simply Oberyn's version of the Azor Ahai reborn through the burning tree symbol to go along with the fiery horse kicking up clouds of ash. Now, right after this passage about Oberyn's dusty troops kicking up ash, Pod describes the Martell banners, a red sun on orange with a spear through its back. Given what we've seen of the red sun symbolism, being swallowed by trees and direwolves alike and staining the snowdrifts pink and red, and given everything we've discussed regarding Azor Ahai being the Solar King who is sacrificed or sacrifices himself to enter the tree, we can really only see this red sun impaled by a sun spear as alluding to Odin's hanging and impalement on Yggdrasil, especially in conjunction with Oberyn's army emerging from the green of the living wood and passing into the wasteland of ashes and burnt trees. It seems like yet another message about Azor Ahai being a Solar King who experiences an Odin-like transformation by entering the Weirwoods. As a final clue about this, we see that George has given Oberyn a kind of third eye, as his high-gilded helm displayed a copper sun on its brow. Next up, Tyrion. After the Battle of the Blackwater, Tyrion finds himself unconscious and dreaming, wandering through a world without color outside of King's Landing, and he sees the trademark Column of Rising Ash. We'll see that in a second, but there's a lead-up to set things up that I want to read. The landscape is littered with corpses and pyres of the dead, and then we read... Ravens soared through a grey sky on wide black wings, while carrion crows rose from their feasts in furious clouds whenever he set his steps, while maggots burrowed through black corruption. The idea is that the corpses serve to symbolize the fallen meteors, and from that spot we will get rising clouds of crows and, in a moment, rising clouds of smoke and ash, which work as parallel symbols. 
The white maggots burrowing through the black corruption of the dead reminds us of the grave worm weirwood roots and might imply the idea of the meteors as toxic, which we think they are, and the weirwoods as somehow being able to transmute or neutralize their poison. We'll follow up on that idea soon, but here is the rising ash a couple of lines later. The sun was a hot white penny, shining down upon the grey river as it rushed around the charred bones of sunken ships. From the pyres of the dead rose black columns of smoke and white-hot ashes. My work, thought Tyrion Lannister. They died at my command. Tyrion sees the rising ash coming from the corpse pyres, a depiction of the ash tree growing at the spot that the meteor struck. He looks at the dead causing the ash and smoke and thinks that it was his work. This is essentially like Azor High entering the Weirwood after having just broken the moon and reflecting on the nature of his deeds. There's a funny line where Tyrion thinks to himself, why did I kill them all? He had known once, but somehow he had forgotten. He'd like to think that Azor High had a good reason for breaking the moon, but who knows? Maybe he just forgot. Anyway, the point is that Tyrion is a demonic sword of half-gargoyle, half-monkey-demon version of Azor Ahai reborn, and he's created the Column of White-Hot Ash. In fact, I believe that this entire liminal dream landscape where Tyrion's spirit is wandering, as his body hangs balanced between life and death, is probably representative of the Weirwood Net. To reinforce the Weirwood symbolism of the White Ash Column and this weird dreamscape in general, we have a sea dragon sighting. The charred bones of sunken ships line reminds us of the sea dragon bones because of the analogy drawn by Theon in A Clash of Kings upon seeing wrecked ships at Lordsport. The skeletons of burnt longships and smashed galleys littering the stony shore like the bones of dead leviathans. Sansa sees these wrecked and burned ships too shortly after the battle, describing charred masts poking from the shallows like gaunt black fingers. Sea dragon boats represent weirwoods, and in particular the idea of a dragon-blooded green seer using the weirwoods, and so the ships looking like fingers compares well to the twisted nightfort weirwood with its bone-white branches reaching for the sun. That's a line which, upon further review, also works to suggest the weirwoods swallowing the sun, as we saw in the weirwood grove of Nine. That grey river again makes us think of the river Styx, a crossing-over point to the realm of death. During the Battle of the Blackwater, Davos's chapter closes with the line, The mouth of the Blackwater Rush had turned into the mouth of hell, which is about as vivid a depiction of the idea of a river acting as a gateway to hell as you can get. We need to revisit the scene when we talk about the Weirwoods as bridges, as the chain boom creating the mouth of hell out of the river mouth is actually acting like a weir in this scene, catching all the burning sea dragon ships and burning men. Another time. Some of the sigils Tyrion sees in this shadow world are interesting. Black hearts, gray lions, dead flowers, and pale ghostly stags. It kind of sounds like a fucked up version of Lucky Charms, right? Mommy, there's dead flowers in my cereal. Kidding aside, though, a gray lion implies a corpse-like sun, which is exactly what the Gray King character shows us, with the idea of a fertile Solar King figure turning into a gray death figure. Black hearts would equate to black-blooded hearts of fallen stars, and ghostly stags, well, those go without saying, dead or undead horned lords. All of these things and more can you find inside the ash tree Weirdrasil. Now, speaking of ghostly stags and resurrected Renly reborn in the ashes, 
King's Landing has one more juicy nugget for us, which paints Renly's brother Robert as a stag man reborn in the ashes. It's the account of Mad King Ares threatening to burn King's Landing, and it comes from two sources. Danny's vision in the House of the Undying from A Clash of Kings, and Jamie's retelling of the event to Brienne of Tarth in A Storm of Swords. In Danny's vision, she sees a pair of bronze doors open, and then... Beyond loomed a cavernous stone hall, the largest she had ever seen. The skulls of dead dragons looked down from its walls. Upon a towering barbed throne sat an old man in rich robes, an old man with dark eyes and long silver-gray hair. Let him be king over charred bones and cooked meat, he said to a man below him. Let him be the king of ashes, Drogon shrieked his claws digging through silk and skin, but the king on his throne never heard, and Danny moved on. King Ares is talking about Robert Baratheon here. Robert is the horned lord about to become a kind of dragon king, sitting in the throne of the dragon kings. He'll be the king of ashes, living in a burnt city. Or perhaps we might say that symbolically, he'll be living inside a burning ash tree. Drogon shrieks right after the King of Ashes line, as if Drogon himself is the King of Ashes, which makes sense because Drogon is a type of Azor High Reborn with eyes like hot coals. Or maybe Drogon's encouraging Ares like, yeah, make that stag man the King of Ashes. Now, here's Jamie's recounting of the same event. The traitors want my city, I heard him tell Rossart, but I'll give them naught but ashes. Let Robert be king over charred bones and cooked meat. The Targaryens never bury their dead. They burn them. Ares meant to have the greatest funeral pyre of them all. Though, if truth be told, I do not believe he truly expected to die. Like Arian Brightfire before him, Ares thought the fire would transform him, that he would rise again, reborn as the dragon, and turn all his enemies to ash. Robert is his enemy, so Ares is talking about turning Robert the Horned Stormlord into ash by roasting him with dragonfire, a second reference to Robert as the King of Ashes in conjunction with his taking King's Landing from the Targaryens. Ares also imagines himself doing the exact thing we're talking about, being reborn as a dragon in the ashes of the greatest funeral pyre of them all. Symbolically, we can call this the King's Pyre motif, and it's the same pyre Drogo was burnt in, where we found Denezor Ahai reborn as an ember in the ashes. It's the place we've been referring to as Ground Zero. It's definitely the pyre of the burning sea dragon gods on Dragonstone, and as a matter of fact, that's the next Lightbringer bonfire that we need to visit. When we look at that very familiar passage again, I think it's the third time in this episode we've been there, we see that Lightbringer too can be found born amidst the ashes. Stannis peeled off the glove and let it fall to the ground. The gods in the pyre were scarcely recognizable anymore. The head fell off the smith with a puff of ashened embers. Melisandre sang in the tongue of Ashai, her voice rising and falling like the tides of the sea. Stannis untied his singed leather cape and listened in silence. Thrust in the ground, Lightbringer still glowed ruddy hot. But the flames that clung to the sword were dwindling and dying. The smith's decapitation produces the requisite puff of ash and embers, alongside Lightbringer being thrust into the ground, 
and that shows us the clouds of ash that rise from the landing of the Lightbringer meteors. We see the dying dead fire symbolism again as the flames that clung to the sword were dwindling and dying. And when you hear ashes and embers and then ashai, you can't help but notice that ashai contains the sound of the word ash. Ashai. Ash, ash, ashai. It's the place where Azora High comes from, so of course it symbolizes ash. Lest we be in doubt, they also have a river ash, a black river that shines with green phosphorescence at night. In it swim blind white fish, very like the kind we find in the Black River in Bloodraven's cave. Now, if you follow the ash upriver, you come to a place called Stygi, or Stygi, a city whose name is a version of the word Stygian, which derives from the same phonetic root as the word Styx. Anyway, the scene at Dragonstone continues. By the time the song was done, only Charwood remained of the gods, and the king's patience had run its course. He took the queen by the elbow and escorted her back into Dragonstone, leaving Lightbringer where it stood. The Red Woman remained a moment to watch as Devon knelt with Byron Faring and rolled up the burnt and blackened sword in the king's leather cloak. The red sword of heroes looks a proper mess, thought Davos. In his seminal essay, R plus L equals Lightbringer, Schmendrick pointed out that Lightbringer is being treated like a newborn baby here, looking a bloody mess and being rolled up in a cloak. Its cradle was the burning wooden statue of the mother, with her moon-like eyes of pearl, as Stannis first pulled the sword from her chest earlier in the scene. We talked earlier about how these wooden gods symbolize weirwoods by one, having began their lives as the mass of Targaryen ships, making them sea dragons, and two, by having been transformed into wooden gods with carved faces. Now they are burning, making them burning tree symbols, a third symbolic representation of the weirwoods. Stannis pulling the sword from the statue of the mother, therefore, is not only like Azor Ahai removing the sword from Nissa Nissa's chest, it's also very like Sigmund pulling Graham from the Brandstalker tree. You'll notice that we have a female goddess, the mother, playing the role of weirwood tree. This gets back to what I've been saying about Nissa Nissa and the Weirwoods both being impregnated by Azora High's fire, and about both acting as a sort of fiery womb from which Azora High can be reborn, rising from the ashes like the phoenix. The statue of the mother is showing us how this works, sharing her wisdom with us as she acts as a sort of crucible from which Lightbringer will emerge. Continuing with Stannis, we find that Stannis himself is depicted as the King of Ashes in a Storm of Swords when he speaks to Davos of having seen a vision in the flames. Your Grace, said Davos, the cost. I know the cost. Last night, gazing into that hearth, I saw things in the flames as well. I saw a king, a crown of fire on his brows, burning, burning Davos. His own crown consumed his flesh and turned him into ash. Do you think I need Melisandre to tell me what that means? Or you? Uh, Mr. Mr. Stannis? Uh, over here, I, I can tell you what it means. Uh, uh, Mr. Stannis? Now in this conversation, they're speaking of sacrificing Edric Storm to wake the dragon. When Stannis is saying, I know the cost... He's actually making a more general reference to knowing the cost of using magic, or perhaps more specifically to the use of Melisandre's magic. He's already created two shadow babies with her at this point, and the experience has drained his life fires down low, as Melisandre says. Then he mentions his dream, which depicts a king taking on the crown of fire, 
the fire of the gods in other words, but being consumed by it. Stannis interprets this as the cost of taking on the mantle of Azor High Reborn, and it speaks to a certain aspect of Stannis' character that he's willing to do what needs to be done to fight the others, even though it may cost him all. So, the themes of the vision here speak of death transformation through fire for Azor High. that's clear enough. The king in the vision is transformed to ash, and we know what that means. He's become part of the ash tree, an ember in the ashes. The crown of fire reminds us of the weirwood crowned with a head of dark red leaves in the weirwood grove of Nine, again because blood and fire are so often synonymous. A white tree that looks like a man with a crown of bloody leaves versus an ash tree man with a crown of fire. They may be talking about the same person. In A Dance with Dragons, John is at the wall and speaking with Val about keeping Mance and Dalla's child safe from Melisandre, and they have an interesting exchange. Val tells John to keep the baby away from Mel because she sees things in her fires. John remarks, sarcastically, ashes and cinders, as if to say, that's all she sees, ashes and cinders. But Val corrects him, replying, kings and dragons. Mel's fire is pretty much just a window into ground zero, and we already know what we're going to find there. An ember amidst the ashes, an ember which represents a reborn dragon king. Thus, John and Val are both right. Ashes and cinders, kings and dragons. We'll close this section with another glimpse into Melisandre's fires, so you can see what I mean when I say that they are a window into ground zero. It comes in a storm of swords, but we'll start the quote with a little bit of lead-in to make the context apparent. It is the great battle his grace is speaking of, said a woman's voice, rich with the accents of the east. Melisandre stood at the door in her red silks and shimmering satins, holding a covered silver dish in her hands. These little wars are no more than a scuffle of children before what is to come. The one whose name may not be spoken is marshalling his power, Davos Seaworth, a power fell and evil and strong beyond measure. Soon comes the cold and the night that never ends. She placed the silver dish on the painted table. Unless true men find the courage to fight it. Men whose hearts are fire. Stannis stared at the silver dish. She has shown it to me, Lord Davos, in the flames. I'll cut in here to point out the covered silver dish. That's an obvious moon symbol. A full moon, fat and pregnant. And inside are the leeches. Three large black leeches, fat with blood. And not just any blood. Davos thinks to himself that it is so-called king's blood from Edric Storm. These three black and bloody leeches are like Danny's three dragons. They represent the meteor shower from the moon in the form of three dragons, which we see fairly often. It's usually either a thousand meteor things or three of them. They're waiting inside the silver moon dish, waiting to spring loose and take fire. When they are burnt, the first leech, curled up like an autumn leaf amidst the coals, which is a really nice nod to the burning weirwood leaves and more generally to the burning king of winter idea. The second leech split and cracked, and the blood burst from it, hissing and smoking, which just kind of generally sounds like dragon-hatching language. This is king's blood we're burning, after all. Now, just like the silver dish, Melisandre represents that same moon, and her black shadow children, the shadow babies, are analogous to these black leeches. She sends the shadow babies to kill, and that's also the exact purpose of these leeches. She makes the shadow babies with King Stannis's seed and life fires, and she makes the leeches with Edric Storm's king's blood. 
Most importantly, Melisandre sets the moon dish down on the painted table, which is in the shape of Westeros. Say what? In fact, what happens is that she says, soon comes the cold and the night that never ends, and then she sets the moon down on top of Westeros. That's absolutely how you bring on a long night and the cold and darkness that never ends. Way to go, Melisandre. The other thing to notice is that they are telling us what the subject matter inside the fire vision is going to be about. The Great Battle, the War for the Dawn, or the War for the Dawn 2.0, or both, since they're probably somewhat parallel. So, let's continue. You saw it, sire. It was not like Stannis Baratheon to lie about such a thing. With mine own eyes. After the battle, when I was lost to despair, the Lady Melisandre bid me gaze into the half-fire. The chimney was drawing strongly, and bits of ash were rising from the fire. I stared at them, feeling half a fool, but she bid me look deeper, and the ashes were white, rising in the updraft, yet all at once it seemed as if they were falling. Snow, I thought. Then the sparks in the air seemed to circle, to become a ring of torches, and I was looking through the fire down on some high hill in a forest. The cinders had become men in black behind the torches, and there were shapes moving through the snow. For all the heat of the fire, I felt a cold so terrible I shivered, and when I did, the sight was gone. The fire but a fire once again, but what I saw was real. I'd stake my kingdom on it. Stannis looks into the hearth fire and sees white ashes rising from the fire, a great depiction of the burning ash tree. We've noted the similarity between weirwoods and fire visions, and that they both grant psychic abilities like astral travel and remote viewing, and that's nicely expressed here as the rising ash itself acts like a viewing portal through which Stannis can see things happening far away. The rising ash turns to falling snow, and the embers become the Night's Watch, arrayed in a ring of torches, a burning moonshade, perhaps. The Black Brothers are the embers in the ashes, which speaks to the last hero's twelve companions, the original Night's Watch, who were probably also Azor Ahai's brethren, at least at one point. In other words, Stannis is looking through the burning ash tree and seeing more embers in the ashes and burning moon symbols, but the embers are Night's Watch brothers, and the ash is now snow. They interpret what they see as some part of the new War for the Dawn, and they're not wrong. In fact, everything here is kind of like a cold version of the usual imagery. The ash has become snow, and Stannis feels a terrible cold despite all the fire, implying the notion of cold fire, and thus the others and their cold burning blue star eyes. The others are indeed sending their dead servants against the Night's Watch at the Fist of the First Men, and so that is why Stannis feels the cold. All of this leads me to believe the symbolism here might be referring to the impending moon disaster as opposed to the one in the past. We'll get into this more when we start the Moons of Ice and Fire series, but I have mentioned that I tend to associate the moon which blew up already with fire and the one we have left with ice. One way or another, Stannis is glimpsing the future, and he's doing it by looking through the symbolic ash tree that was created in the fire. And in this vision, Stannis sees his destiny, he has to go and lead those Black Brothers with torches with his burning stagman prowess and help them fight the cold. If we were to interpret this in terms of what it might mean for the original Azor Ahai and or the last hero, I am seeing Azor Ahai being reborn through the burning tree 
and then heading north to confront the others, or to become the Night's King, or both, or however that works. Stannis has to wear the fiery crown and be transformed into the King of Ashes to fight the others, and I would guess that it was much the same for the original last hero. To sum up what we've just seen, Azor High is an ember in the ashes, and so is Danny, and Drogon, and Jon, and Bloodraven, and resurrected Renly, and Oberyn, and Tyrion, and Stannis, and Stannis' fake Lightbringer, and the Night's Watch itself. Basically, all the most prominent symbols of Azor High Reborn and Lightbringer appear with the Ember in the Ashes symbolism. Toss in Barrack's resurrection in a grove of ash, and the tomb of Tristopher the MC Hammer of Justice in a grove of ash, plus the ashwood spears decorated with the carved bloody heads of horned lords like Garth Greyfeather and Blackjack Bulwer, and I think we can safely say that Martin is indeed using the symbolism of Yggdrasil as an ash tree to further imply Azor High and his ilk as having gone into the trees, and indeed as being the faces in the trees. So, the trees are like a womb, a fiery womb, as I've said over and over. Wombs belong to women, and Azor High wedded Nissa Nissa as well as the Weirwood tree. That means that it's time to talk about Nissa Nissa's apparent symbolic overlap with the Weirwoods. But gosh, look at the time. Originally, this was going to be a section at the end of this episode, but I chopped it off for its own episode, researched it a bit further, and it turns out that there was more there than I originally thought. So, you can look forward to an entire episode dedicated to the Nissa Nissa Moon Maidens who seem to transform into symbolic Weirwoods in what I am calling the Weirwood Stigmata. You'll have to tune in next time to see what the hell I mean by that. Now before we go, a word about our Patreon. Although we still have one more to announce, we have filled up all of the Zodiac slots, which was our top patron level. And so, we've created a group of Guardian of the Galaxy patrons based on the constellations that are specifically named in A Song of Ice and Fire. We divided them into two tiers based on their relative stature in the narrative. The first tier is the galley, the ghost, the king's crown, which is the cradle north of the wall, and the sow. The second tier, slightly more prestigious, consists of the shadow cat, whom I introduced earlier, the crone's lantern, the stallion, who is the horned lord north of the wall, the ice dragon, and the moon maid. If you'd like to support the podcast and increase your celestial stature, Go to LucifermeansLightbringer.com and click on the Patreon tab for more info. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Until next time.